The committee will now come to order. I want to welcome everyone and thank you for joining today's hearing entitled A 2022 Review of the Farm Bill, the Role of USDA Programs in Addressing Climate Change. After brief opening remarks, members will receive testimony from our very distinguished witnesses today, and then the hearing will be open for questions. And I want to welcome everyone to a very important hearing today. As many of you may recall, uh, our first hearing in my tenure as chairman of this committee, we discussed the role that farmers and ranchers and foresters have in addressing climate change, as well as the impacts that climate change will have on them and their local communities in rural areas. Today's hearing will focus on how our 2018 Farm Bill supports voluntary USDA programs that can help improve the profitability of our agriculture operations and mitigate climate change at the same time. This is very important. And ladies and gentlemen, there's no industry, there's no entity that relies on their existence from climate and weather than agriculture. So that is why we in agriculture must be at the front of the point of the spear when it comes to addressing climate change. And our rural communities are already facing inadequate infrastructures and natural disasters. Just look at the fires in the western part of our nation um, that will grow in frequency and impact with further effects their ability to provide reliable, affordable, <coughs> electric service and clean drinking water, things that other sections of the country take for granted. Our rural communities are in the crosshairs of this. I'm also allowing farmers to remain a viable way of life. That's important here. Family farming is the hardbed of our agriculture system. And I'm pleased that we have a young farmer here today who can speak to her experience utilizing such programs through USDA. Our aim is to also provide rural small businesses and towns with the tools to undertake efforts to address climate change impacts or increase their own energy efficiency, which helps their bottom lines and their budgets and increase their farm's profitability. And as we're all seeing right now, increasing energy efficiency and producing more renewable energy 
right here at home should continue to be a goal to ensure that we do not have to rely on other countries for our own energy needs. We're blessed in our own country to have the necessary energy sources without depending on other nations. Today's panel of witnesses brings a wide breadth of experience from the role of the federal government in program development and funding all the way to how farmers are utilizing and implementing these programs. I've said some time and time again that we want agriculture to be at the tip of the spear. That is what we want to accomplish today. It is agriculture that must lead this nation's effort in climate change. With that, I will now turn it over to our ranking member for his opening statement. Well, thank you, Chairman Scott, and thank you to our panelists for uh, uh, testifying today. Greatly appreciated. Excited about the panels that sit before us. Recently, the New York Times wrote a series of stories and produced several videos uh, denigrating rural Americans for providing this country with the safest, most abundant, and most affordable food supply in the history of the world. Let's set the record straight. U.S. agriculture accounts for less than 10% of greenhouse gas emissions, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. Over the last 70 years, U.S. agriculture has tripled food and fiber production, while usage of land, energy, fertilizer, and other inputs has remained steady. Now, I believe farmers are climate champions, but there is more to be done. In fact, nearly a year ago, several of my Republican colleagues on this committee introduced a suite of climate-friendly and farmer-focused bills. So if you have common-sense solutions, I'm here to work with you. But I will not fundamentally spend our commodity conservation and crop insurance programs to appease Washington think tanks. I will reject complicating our programs and making climate the focus of every title of the upcoming Farm Bill reauthorization. Now, we must ensure agriculture production remains viable in rural America to keep production from increasing in areas of the world with lower environmental standards, worse labor conditions, and fewer food safety considerations. And that is why a robust safety net is critical to keeping farms and production here while lowering overall global greenhouse gas emissions. Now, I would be remiss not to mention the, the tone deafness for, of this hearing as our country and our farmers face enormous and immediate challenges, including higher food prices, record inflation, input costs, attacks on our energy independence, uh, which, by the way, would, could lead us to a greater supply of domestic-produced fertilizer, um, and dependable labor, which has been a theme uh, long before COVID, uh, a need. Now, these are the issues I hear about as I travel the country, and these are the issues we should be addressing. Our producers need action, not half-baked pilots and arbitrary mandates. Now, I hope at the end of the day we recognize that our voluntarily, voluntary, locally-led, and center-based conservation system is working as intended, and that we must not undermine its continued success in supporting the environment and, uh, and producers. Uh, agriculture is science, it's technology, 
uh, let me back up and say American agriculture is science, is technology, it's innovation. The demands of a 21st century farm economy and the economically viable climate solutions depend on tools and policies that continue to unleash and increase U.S. productivity. Um, uh, once again, thank you to... Uh, uh, to our panelists that are here, looking forward to your testimony and the opportunity to, uh, to be able to hear the exchange between our members and yourselves. And, Mr. Chairman, I yield back the, my time. Thank you, Ranking Member. And the Chair would request that other members submit their opening statements for the record so witnesses may begin their testimony and to ensure that there is ample time for questions. Our first witness today is Ms. Mr. Charles Connor, who is the president and CEO of the National Council of Former uh, Cooperatives on behalf of the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance. Our next witness today is Ms. Kristen Weeks Duncanson, who is the owner and partner of Duncanson Growers. And she is testifying today on behalf of the Agree Economic Environmental Risk Coalition. Our third witness is our former Senate colleague, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, from the great state of North Dakota. She is the co-chair of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Farm and Forest Carbon Solutions Task Force. Our fourth witness today is Ms. Sharika Shea-Ray-Gaza. Let me repeat that, please. Ms. Sharika Ray-Gaza who is an owner and operator of Terra Preta Farm. And she is testifying today on behalf of the National Young Farmers Coalition. To introduce our fifth witness today, I am pleased now to yield to our colleague from California, Mr. Panetta. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It is my absolute honor to introduce Dr. Glenda Humiston as a witness in today's hearing on the role of USDA programs in addressing climate change. Now, as the representative for the Central Coast of California, I am well aware not only of the benefits of our agriculture to our community and our country, but also the many, many challenges faced by that number one industry in the number one agricultural state in the nation, California. Unfortunately, as we will hear today, one of the growing challenges, especially in my state, is the ever-changing landscape due to the climate crisis. Fortunately, we have people like Dr. Humiston, who has dedicated her career to supporting agricultural sustainability by working to ensure that people thrive, our planet is healthy, and there's prosperity for all. As a current vice president for the University of California Agricultural and Natural Resources, Dr. Humiston advances those goals with innovative answers to local issues by leading a staff of over 1,500 people at 11 institutes and nine research and extension centers in California. She came into that position in 2015 with more than 25 years of experience working on public policy development and program implementation to support sustainability. 
That includes her service as President Clinton's Deputy Undersecretary for Natural Resources and Environment at the USDA and being appointed by President Obama as the California State Director at the USDA Rural Development Division. Dr. Humiston is California-born and Colorado-raised, where she grew up on a cattle ranch and was, active, was an active member of 4-H. So I have no doubt that her experience working with cows to U.S. Congress members and from mechanization to the sequestration of carbon and everything in between has allowed Dr. Humiston to be able to provide this committee with insightful information for us to use as we provide solutions in the 2023 Farm Bill for the effects of climate change on agriculture. Mr. Chairman, I thank you for this important hearing, and I thank you, Dr. Humiston, not just for your invaluable testimony today, but also for your interminable work to ensure a fruit fruitful future for our agriculture, not just in California, but all across our country. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Panetta. And now our sixth and final witness today is Dr. Joe Outlaw, who is the co-director of the Agriculture and Food Policy Center, Department of Agricultural Economics at Texas A&M University. I am so pleased to have such a distinguished panel of witnesses before us today. Thank you so much for being with us. You will each have five minutes, and the timer should be visible to you, and will count down to zero, at which time your time will be um, expired. And now let us begin with you, Mr. Connor. Please begin when you're ready. Thank you, Chairman Scott. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee, thank you for holding today's hearing and inviting me to testify on the role of USDA programs in addressing climate change in the next Farm Bill. I am Chuck Connor, uh, President and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives and a founding co-chair of the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance, which I am testifying on behalf of today. <clears throat> Formed two years ago, FACA breaks down the barriers that have existed between farm organizations and environmental groups on the issue of climate and gives producers a seat at the table in climate discussions. Today, with a steering committee of 24 groups and a broader membership of over 80 organizations, FACA truly represents the food, agriculture, and forestry value chain from field to fork. As the committee begins work on the next Farm Bill, we recommend that the process align with FACA's guiding principles. We believe that policies sh should be voluntary and that market and incentive and market and incentive based, that they should advance uh, science-based solutions and outcomes, and that they should promote resiliency and help rural economies better adapt to climate change. With these principles in mind, FACA has developed a robust set of policy recommendations that should be considered while writing the next Farm Bill. I would like to highlight just a few key examples. For a more comprehensive list, I refer the committee members to my written testimony. First, we believe that USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service must be bolstered to effectively meet and address climate. FACA re recommends a 10 to 20% increase in funding for NRCS programs to be dedicated for new and existing greenhouse gas reductions, adaptation, and soil health efforts. 
We also support setting aside 1% of total mandatory funding for the new from the new baseline for technical assistance to ensure producers receive critical on-the-ground support. Second, FACA recognizes that climate-smart agriculture re uh, requires reliable broadband. Without such a connection, many of the tools required to implement and measure best practices are simply out of reach of producers. We applaud Congress's efforts uh, on broadband thus far. However, uh, the need is great across the countryside, and many, many gaps remain. FACA hopes that this continues to be an area of focus in the Farm Bill process. Third, FACA has several recommendations on energy efficiency that could be included in the next Farm Bill. For example, the Rural Energy for America program, or REAP, has, helps producers and rural small businesses install renewable energy systems and improve energy efficiency. Since this program is oversubscribed, we urge the committee to increase funding to meet demand. In addition, expanding REAP's eligible entities to include farmer co-ops would facilitate wider adoption of renewable energy technology, such as anaerobic digesters. FACA also supports programs already underway at USDA to address climate. I would like to give special uh, mention to USDA's newly launched Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities. FACA is especially pleased to see the program structured consistent with our recommendations for climate pilot projects. FACA's original policy recommendations were developed in 2020. They were not written with a farm bill in mind. In addition, the membership of FACA has grown considerably, both in numbers and diversity since that time. Because of this, FACA will soon start a process to update our own priorities for the upcoming farm bill to build upon the scope of our original recommendations. We look forward to working very, very closely with this committee in this process. Finally, as the Farm Bill process begins, I believe it is critical that any efforts to address climate must provide access for all producers and rural communities and address the historic inequalities that have been seen in many federal farm programs. In conclusion, FACA believes that the next Farm Bill <clears throat> must be uh, written to address climate policy, responding to consumer demands, private sector commitments to reduce emissions and grow green energy will only continue in the years ahead. The potential for added costs to be pushed down to producers makes it imperative that the next Farm Bill provide the tools to help producers remain profitable. With the right public policy, what could be an unsustainable cost, we believe can be turned into something that will boost farm income and help rural communities. Mr. Chairman, again, thank you for holding this hearing today, and I look forward to responding to questions at the appropriate time. And thank you, Mr. O'Connor, for your excellent remarks and testimony. And now, Ms. Duncanson, please begin when you're ready. Thank you very much. Good morning to everyone. I am Kristen Weeks Duncanson, representing the Agree Coalition. I'd like to thank Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and all the members of the committee for an opportunity to testify today. As part of my testimony, I'll also be submitting some documents from the coalition with my official transcript. My husband, Pat, and I own Highland Family Farms in Mapleton, Minnesota. We grow soybeans, corn, small grains, and raise hogs. 
We practice conservation on our acres. We are transitioning some acres to organic production and are even considering how we can grow saplings on some marginal lands to help supply restore, reforestation efforts in the northern part of our state. I'm also a member of the AGREE Coalition, a group that builds consensus around ideas that will make agriculture more resilient, profitable, and sustainable. As a business owner and farmer, better information is the foundation of how I manage risk from disruptions to our operation due to pandemics, wars, or climate change. This committee has repeatedly asked, how do we convince farmers to adopt conservation practices? The answer is simple, it's better data. Data that is up to date, accessible, and can be analyzed to show the costs and benefits of conservation practices. USDA and private sector companies both collect data, an enormous amount of it from farmers. USDA has the opportunity to use our data to advance widespread adoption of conservation. Agrees farmer-centric approach is grounded in the understanding that farmers must see how conservation practices benefit farm profitability in order to bring adoption up to scale. USDA must lengthen, analyze data across mission areas and make this data available to qualified, trusted academic institutions and researchers so that they, they can show that it works. It's easy to get bogged down in the concerns about data privacy or who gets access. I answer those criticisms that by pointing out that USDA for years has shared confidential data with land grant universities under strict guidelines, processes to protect privacy, including requirements that all the published reports only use aggregated non-identifiable data already exist. Researchers who break a contract and reveal personal data face jail time. I recently jotted down all the data that we report to USDA for farm programs, conservation programs, and for crop insurance, plus the data I report to my insurance agent and the data I report to my lender and to the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. All that data or most of it is integrated on our John Deere platform. It's helpful to us, certainly, and it's also helpful to them. They're going to use that data to sell me more products and services. However, not all farmers participate in this private sector data revolution. It's the role of USDA and Congress to make sure that the new insights coming from analyzing big data are available to all farmers. One example of how USDA could better use the data is to improve the connections between conservation and crop insurance. Cover crops, crop rotation and rotational grazing make crop and rangeland more resilient to drought, bring more water holding capacity for deluges we're increasingly seeing, and save money to farmers through reduced pesticides. Yet these practices are peripheral to crop insurance and only recognize, are recognized after many years of adoption as we change our APH. This can be 10, 20, or 30 years, depending upon how many crops you're growing. You see the farm, the problem, farmers use conservation and they become more less risky and more resilient. 
that probability of loss decreases as their conservation increases, but that is only recognized through crop insurance as an APH that takes decades to, to establish. Let me be abundantly clear. We support the federal crop insurance program and the reliability it offers to farmers. We also support that crop insurance could recognize or perhaps even incentivize farmers to adopt conservation to reduce risk to an uncertain future. Agriculture is going to change dramatically over the next span of the next Farm Bill. Let's plan for that future. Thank you again for this opportunity. I only wish I could be there in person, but it's a beautiful day here in Minnesota, and we're getting ready to plant. Thank you, Mr. Duncanson. And now, Senator Hagkamp, welcome. Please begin when you're ready. Thank you so much, Chairman Scott, and thank you to the ranking member Thompson for letting me um, speak on behalf of the great work of the Bipartisan Policy Center and my great friend and co-chair uh, for this effort, uh, Senator Saxby Chambliss, who I know will uh, share in my comments and urge you all to become familiar with the work that we've done. Um, I wanna uh, maybe just start out by um, adding to some of the comments that you've already heard from uh, the ranking member and from the chairman. Um, as we move into this next uh, uh, couple months, um, we've been spending a lot of time talking about how energy security is now national security, but we will be now talking about how food security is national security and global security for our democracies. And so this is gonna challenge not only our energy supply chain, but also our food supply chain. And that's why um, a discussion like this on how we can increase productivity, how we can uh, reduce the costs of inputs is so critical. And I think a lot of the work that's being done right now by all the groups that you're hearing from is, is really geared towards making farmers more profitable, um, more able to sell into the global market. I want to just talk a little bit about our process. Um, we started out, Saxby and I did, by saying, um, boy, have things changed. Um, you know, when we were in the Senate, if you had talked about climate and farmers and rural America in the same sentence, you might have been drummed out of the room. Um, the attitudes of rural America and farmers have really changed as they have seen the consequences of climate, but also as they see the opportunity of growing to a global market, grow, uh, growing for and selling to a global market and what that means. And so we, we were very convinced that the time was right for us to uh, begin this process. I want to just report what a soybean farmer said to me in North Dakota when I asked him about climate. He said, I expect that we are going to have to be able to prove sustainability and climate sensitivity for the commodities that we sell into the global market in the future. Let's get going. Um, the, uh, the next step that we took was evaluate where we are. And I really have to give a shout out to the great staff at BPC. Um, they did a great job in evaluating what that looks like. Um, uh, second, um, I want to reiterate kind of the goals. Do no harm. Let's keep the programs that are working, working for us. Make it economically important and viable to, to adapt uh, some of these challenges. And um, let's, let's make sure that we don't leave behind something that hasn't been said here. The early adapters. I'm always sensitive to people who, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. You know, where's my benefit? Um, you're trying to promote 
change in other producers, do I get a benefit from change? And so we basically came up with a list of, um, you know, when you look at it, six themes. And I want to focus on two because I don't have a lot of time left. Uh, The first one is workforce. You have all the data in the world, but if you don't have somebody ready to engage with farmers and ranchers on the ground, in the field, telling them, you know, look what your neighbor did over here. How are we going to um, uh, kind of help you understand how these programs work? And so, you know, you can design all these programs, you can have all the pilot programs in the world, but you don't, if you don't have an implementation strategy for those programs, this won't work. And so that's why it's so important that we educate that next generation of farmers. Um, The second thing I want to highlight is uh, carbon markets. And I know that hasn't always been um, a a subject of of, um, consensus on your committee, but I want to just relay some of the things that we heard. People who are going to buy into carbon markets, they want certainty. They want to know that they're not buying something that just simply is is uh, uh, not I wouldn't say junk, but they aren't they're buying something that actually has a climate impact. They have reputational risk if they don't. And as they talk about their own um, kind of uh, uh, carbon sensitivity, they want to make sure that that they're getting uh, the bang for the buck and the environment's getting the bang for the buck. And so that's why a lot of the research and a lot of the uh, work that's being done by the committee um, to kind of evaluate um, how do we give it the good housekeeping seal of approval, if I can use those words. And I know that Secretary of Agriculture is very engaged and certainly the uh, Growing Climate Solutions Act would task the secretary with that. I think it's important that that work start as soon as possible because that's where we're gonna see a huge benefit, economic benefit for our ag producers. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I look forward to the questions and answers. Thank you very much, Senator Heikam. Uh, and now, Ms. Ray Gossa, please begin when you're ready. Thank you to the Honorable David Scott and Glenn G.T. Thompson for holding this important hearing. I appreciate the opportunity to share my story. My name is Shakira Regoza, and I, alongside my husband, I'm the owner and operator of Terra Preta Farm in Edinburgh, Texas. We grow certified organic vegetables with 15 acres in wholesale production and one acre in production for local farmers markets and community supported agriculture. I work as the farm sales manager and with the National Young Farmers Coalition, providing technical assistance to young, black, indigenous and people of color farmers applying for USDA Farm Service Agency loans. Because I have benefited so much from USDA programs, I want to help other farmers to gain access to those programs. When we first started farming in 2009, my husband had a bachelor's degree in agriculture and I was a certified nurse with no farming experience. We began farming by borrowing a small tract of land from our neighbor. Growing our farm business was challenging because we had to relocate three years in a row due to our leases being terminated because the owners were expanding into the land for development or they were offered more by other growers. Farm service agency ownership loans helped us purchase our own land and we directly benefited from FSA operating microloans. 
We've also benefited from the National, the Natural Resource Conservation Service Environmental Quality Incentives Program, funding for high tunnels, cover cropping, land leveling, and irrigation systems. Throughout our time farming, I've noticed how climate change has affected and changed our work. Living in the Rio Grande Valley, hurricanes and heavy flooding have hit our area three times in a row from 2018 to 2020. The most recent hurricane, Hannah, hit in July 2020, dumping more than nine inches of rain in the area in just two days. The floods damaged our cover crops, causing $4,000 in losses. And even though we usually have mild winters, we've had many extreme cold days recently. Last winter, during winter storm Uri, we experienced a hard freeze and lost a third of our crops. These losses totaled $60,000, more than half of our annual revenue. I'm currently still trying to navigate the non-insured crop disaster assistance program to get help for those losses. Fortunately or unfortunately, communication between the local office has been painfully slow and the USDA staff aren't sure how to help a small scale diversified farmer like myself. To support the future of agriculture, USDA must improve staff training and increase the number of USDA staff specifically dedicated to small and beginning farmers and outreach. Crop insurance is too expensive and disaster relief programs are not accessible to small and diversified farms. We want to do more to mitigate climate change on our farm, including on-farm renewable energy, drip tape for water conservation, and biochar for sequestering carbon. We would benefit from programs that would provide funding upfront for conservation without placing the burden of financing onto the farmers who may not have access to credit. When I have applied for the programs with USDA, I found the process is long and requires a lot of paperwork. We almost lost out on purchasing our farmland due to a lengthy process. Loans are designed for commodity farmers to grow one or two crops. Figuring out how to convert our production of over 40 crops to yields per acre and present proof of our market prices requires a lot of time that we just don't have as owner operators with off-farm jobs. Many farmers I talked with about CFAP too appreciated the streamlined process and broad range of eligible crops. Young farmers would benefit from streamlined applications for diversified farms. When I first started farming, there were many local producers who sold at my farmer's market. 10 years later, only one or two of those original farmers are still farming. Young farmers are the future of agriculture but we need the support from USDA in order to continue sustainably growing food for our communities while dealing with the changing climate. We as farmers have the unique ability to sequester carbon in the soil by using climate smart methods, but lack the capital, access to credit and land to expand our climate action. USDA must focus on expanding programs and supporting farmers like me who built our businesses for resilience and are already invested in this work. Investments like this are critical for the future of our rural communities, feeding our families, and helping the next generation of farmers to be at the forefront of climate action. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, Ms. Uh, Regasa. Thank you. And now, Dr. Hunnison, please begin when you're ready. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to speak on this subject and the next Farm Bill. 
For more than a century, California's $50 billion agricultural sector has depended on the land-grant university for new technologies and research breakthroughs needed to stay competitive and be responsible stewards of the land. Beyond on-farm production, California's working landscapes include forests, wetlands, mines, and water bodies that are valuable sources of ecosystem services. Those services provide biological necessities such as clean water, nutritious food, and livable climate, as well as economic benefits such as jobs and revenue. Extreme climate events are changing California's ecosystems. Fires, floods, drought, and more invasive pests are already affecting agriculture. For example, unseasonably warm weather now causes many fruit and nut trees to bloom before the last frost, causing great economic losses. Changing climate decreases water supplies, increases wildfires, and threatens agricultural productivity. To combat this, we must enable working landscapes to adapt and become a solution to climate change. According to the National Academy of Sciences, U.S. soils and forests have the potential to sequester about 500 million metric tons of carbon dioxide annually. Markets for carbon credits are one solution to move us there. Such climate smart practices require we fully utilize USDA programs and leverage collaborations between government, academia, and the private sector. We need voluntary market and incentive-based programs and a focus on science-based outcomes. New science and technologies will allow farmers to remain economically viable while generating co-benefits such as improved water holding capacity of soils, pollinator habitat, and carbon sequestration. We're moving to expand relations between the life sciences and engineering and other technology specialists to develop those complex solutions to these challenges. Some examples are placing solar panels over irrigation canals to reduce evaporation of precious irrigation water while also producing electricity, something Congressman Costa has long supported. Implementing healthy soil practices to improve groundwater recharge and dairy digesters to create biofuels rather than harmful greenhouse gases. Other opportunities exist in forest health efforts that convert excessive fuel loads, biomass, into valuable bioproducts. Expanding the capacity to manufacture advanced wood products can support economic development in rural communities. Examples of this work include converting that biomass into hydrogen and liquid biofuels to replace diesel and trucks. In California, we're excited to work with the governor and the state legislature to secure a $185 million investment in UC to expand climate-focused research, innovation, and workforce development. This funding will establish regional workforce hubs to provide on-the-job training opportunities for students and leverage career certification programs for college prep and non-degree-seeking individuals. USDA's climate hub should be expanded to engage in more stakeholders, as should the Forest Service's work on wood products and ability to enter into long-term stewardship agreements with state and local partners. Rural development, the Agricultural Marketing Service, and many other USDA programs help build climate solutions through more efficient re regional food systems, workforce training, certification of bio-preferred products, and risk management. 
To help rural economies better adapt to climate change, we need senior USDA leadership coordinating climate issues across programs and pushing interagency cooperation. USDA must also collaborate with federal entities to support improvements to broadband access and with programs like the Economic Development Administration to ensure that access to capital, effective economic development, and infrastructure investments are effectively delivered. Such distribution of program dollars also requires that the current definition of rural be updated. Far too many communities are improperly denied USDA resources due to the antiquated definitions of rural versus metropolitan. Federal capacity funds are leveraged many-fold by competitive and private industry partnerships. Competitive grants stimulate new ideas and speed up some research. However, they can also encourage a shift towards short-term project research. It can take several years to develop a new crop variety, longer for tree crops, and even longer to fine-tune new technologies. When UC Davis designed a machine to automate harvest of tomatoes in the 60s, it required agronomists to breed a less delicate variety of tomato that could be machine harvested. There's a critical need to invest in a well-balanced mix of capacity and competitive funds for research, as well as significant investments in ag research facilities. Such investments will help ensure farmers and ranchers have access to sound science, technologies, and information they need to build climate resilience and mitigate environmental impacts. I thank you for the opportunity and look forward to questions. Thank you, Dr. Huniston. And now, Dr. Outlaw, you may begin. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify on behalf of the Agricultural and Food Policy Center at Texas A&M University as you focus on the opportunities that producers have to positively impact climate change. As many of you know, the primary focus of AFPC has been to analyze the likely consequences of policy changes at the farm level with our one-of-a-kind data set of information that we collect from commercial farmers and ranchers located across the United States. Working closely with commercial producers has provided our group with a unique perspective on agricultural policy. While we normally provide the results of policy analysis to you or your staff without recommendation, today I'm carrying the message from the 675 producers we work with across the United States. The set of conservation programs in Title II have a strong track record of incentivizing producers to retire some of the country's most fragile land or implementing environmentally beneficial projects or practices on working lands. The producers we work with have very strong positive views about these programs with the only drawbacks being they have more projects they are willing to do than there is money to do them. In preparation for this testimony, we emailed our representative farm members the following points that I planned on making and asked them to let us know if they agreed or disagreed with each of the five points. They agreed. Number one, having a strong safety net from Title I programs, ARC PLC and the marketing loan, and Title XI crop insurance remains critical even with new carbon market opportunities. In the words of a wheat farm panel member from Washington State, if it's the peace of mind we get from knowing the bottom can't completely fall out from under us that keeps us going. Most felt that crop insurance was going to be the key safety net program this year with high prices and reiterated do no harm. This leads me to the point that might not be shared by others on this panel. In my opinion, tying climate smart practices to the crop insurance program should not be done, not to premiums, not to participation, nor to indemnities. The farmers we work with are worried about the long-run implications for crop insurance of tying climate smart provisions to the policy and that it will lead to regional winners and losers depending upon practices that are available. 
Number two, USDA conservation programs, CRP, CSP, and EQIP that have been incentivized, that have incentivized a broad array of conservation practices have worked well in the past. They have just been underfunded. These programs have a strong history of helping producers undertake practice that scientific studies have found provide proven environmental benefits. Producers much prefer this type of approach to the current carbon program situation. Number three, Congress should strongly consider providing financial incentives to early adopters who are not eligible to participate in current carbon programs due to the additionality requirement. If it is good to sequester carbon, it should also be good to keep carbon sequestered. Many of the producers who responded to my request indicated that they are disgusted with a system that only rewards late adopters. I believe that the government and this committee has a role in ensuring producers with carbon already stored are incentivized to keep the carbon sequestered. Potential programs should avoid the incentive to reverse production systems so that carbon already stored is released in order to capture program benefits. Number four, all producers, regardless of size, region, or crops planted, should have opportunities in any new USDA climate programs. This statement appears fairly benign, but let me assure you it is not. If all producers in the U.S. do not have some USDA NRCS identified practice they can undertake in the name of sequestering carbon, then there will be regional winners and losers as carbon programs are created. Number five, Congress should consider providing USDA the authority to safeguard pr producers from being taken advantage of in current carbon markets dealing with private entities. For example, signing a carbon contract with at least one current company would require a producer to forego commodity and conservation program benefits on that land. The agriculture industry is in need of guidelines that take the mystery out of the current carbon market opportunities. If car private carbon markets are ever going to matter, they have to be more transparency than there is currently. The current benefits are way too low, too low to lock into a multi-year agreement with the lack of structure and transparency in this market. Mr. Chairman, that completes my statement. Thank you, Dr. Outlaw, and thank all of you for your excellent testimony. At this time, members will be recognized for questions in order of seniority alternating between majority and minority members. You will be recognized for five minutes each in order to allow us the necessary time to get to as many questions as possible. And also, please, please, please keep your microphones muted until you are recognized in order to minimize background noise. And now I recognize myself uh, for five minutes. Miss um, uh, Regosa, let me, um, you gave, you brought out some interesting points and one of our committee's concerns is that we recognize the many challenges that our beginning farmers are having. You all are our future, the beginning farmers. You mentioned a couple of things I'd like you to address. You mentioned a problem with upfront money. You also mentioned a lengthy process, lack of capital, um, access to land. You brought a lot of very important points out that I'd like for you to address in order of importance 
in order that we may make the necessary recommendations to address these issues that you and our beginning farmers are um, facing. Could you start with what you mean by upfront money? Ms. Regatta, Regosa? Yes. Yes, thank you for the question. Upfront money I'm referring to is the money we had to um, gain upfront to implement the equip practices. For example, on my farm, we were approved for land leveling, and we had to take out a personal loan to cover the cost of implementing that practice. And we also had to get uh, financing through a line of credit in order to implement some irrigation systems on our farm. And so th those are the upfront costs I'm speaking of. Uh, fortunately for us, we have good credit, but many young farmers, they um, might not have uh, good credit to access those financing options. Um, so I think mm -hmm. that's key for making those programs accessible to farmers is to have um, those costs um, or th that those funds available mm -hmm. up front and so we don't have to look for other financing options. Well, very good. And uh, I'm sure the, uh, all of us will be addressing that concern and certainly uh, the USAD, um, I think, are very mindful of your testimony on those points. Senator Hank Heitkamp, in your testimony, you mentioned the importance of expanding technical assistance for natural climate solutions and addressing workforce needs. Um, could you address those? How will this benefit some of our historically undeserved, underserved producers? Senator Heitkamp. I think clearly um, anyone who knows anything about agriculture knows that we've left some farmers behind. And a lot of that isn't just about access to capital. It isn't just about uh, land challenges that you all have, but it also is about access to information and access to the expertise. And it seems to me that we need, if we are going to recognize, let's take North Dakota, 91% of all of North Dakota's engaged in production agriculture. And even if you are not recognized as an ag state, you still have a lot of land and you have a lot of ag producers. Every state in the union, including states like Massachusetts, have, um, have, have a baseline in agriculture. And so we can't leave anyone behind if we're going to do it. But the problem that you have with workforce is we train workforce, but do we deploy them appropriately? And you know, I know from my experience, I'll take the EQIP program, during a horrible drought in Western North Dakota, uh, an early adapter of the EQIP program actually was able to grow grass and did not have to buy hay. All of a sudden his neighbors were looking across the fence. What a great moment that would have been to deploy a team of people to say, hey, this is how you do the EQIP program and not rely on just that 
producer to producer discussion. And so I think deploying a workforce, this is really true in forestry as well. And we had a lot of discussions about um, workforce and forestry. We know we have a workforce crisis. We have a lot of Americans who would love to um, do climate work, would love to work in rural America. We just need to get them trained and deployed. And that's not just in states, uh, you know, it's not just in Cass County, which is where Fargo is. It's gotta be in every county where we have an ag producer. Thank you, Senator. And now ranking member, I recognize you for five minutes. All right, Chairman, thank you very much. And thanks to all the members of the panel uh, for your uh, your testimony. You know, USDA has announced this $1 billion Climate Smart Commodity Partnership Initiative pilot. Uh, many of you have heard me question the department's authority to unilaterally create this pilot, and I'm also concerned about the precedent this pilot sets and its impact on farmers and ranchers. It's my understanding that the CCC dollars will flow to a wide range of partners, and it's very unclear how much of the funding will make it into the hands of producers, farmers. Now, I do not believe that USDA or the taxpayers should be subsidizing a corporation's arbitrary climate goals, nor do I believe we should be funding a climate cottage industry. Um, certainly, I do believe in the role that agriculture plays uh, and the leading role that our farmers, ranchers, and foresters play when it comes to the climate. That said, more concerning, however, is USDA moving forward creating climate smart commodities when we've not examined the impact on farmers and ranchers. Uh, Dr. Outlaw, first of all, thank you for your, your leadership, your continuous leadership serving uh, uh, the agriculture industry. Um, as an economist, do you have thoughts on this smart, climate smart commodity initiative and its impacts on farmers and ranchers? I certainly do. I, obviously, I think that the effort is, is a positive, but, but as someone who worries about markets and what's going to happen to producers, uh, when you start developing climate smart commodities, unless you have the ability for every area of the country to participate, then you're going to segment and you could potentially have segmented markets. Those that are done with climate smart practices might. The only reason you do this is to try to uh, get a better price for those commodities. Uh, so one of the things, and just point blank, if you're going to do this, you have to be very, very careful, which I'm not sure we've ever been careful enough to do this, because you could, you could absolutely create winners and losers in the same commodity and much less the same region or different regions of the, of the United States. Yeah, I mean, isn't it true that, um, you, know, you know, within agriculture, different climates, soil types, uh, how much moisture, I mean, there's, ju there's just a, how much nutrition's in the soil. There's a lot of variability of American agriculture, what our farmers and ranchers face. And so uh, what happens to a cotton farmer who can't grow climate-smart cotton? What, what do you see as the impact on that market? Well, if this works and, and, and uh, end users pay more because of those practices, then they would be getting lower prices for their cotton without uh, the benefit of getting those higher prices. So that, that really is differentiating the market. And, and that's the one thing that I think has got to be protected uh, on these practices and this effort. Yeah, you know, the unilateral uh, use of $1 billion out of the CCC by the secretary and the department at a time when uh, commodity prices, not all of them, but some are at a record high. You know, we have commodities that are not there, but but inflationary costs are record record high. And the CCC is how we how we deal with those types of, of crisis. You know, uh, you know, with this billion dollars that's been committed unilaterally, uh, I believe without authority, have 
are we using government funding to put some growers at a disadvantage? Potentially, certainly. Yeah. Uh, last year, I introduced, uh, with the support of, of, of colleagues, uh, the Sustains Act, which would allow for third parties, including corporations and businesses of all sizes. That's, that was the beauty of what it, it wasn't just the, the, uh, the Googles, the Microsofts, uh, uh, the mega folks that we talk about, but the mom and pop hardware store, you know, the tractor supply place, those who want to achieve their climate credentials would be able to invest in NRCS conservation programs. And in doing so, it would allow the private sector to partner with farmers and ranchers and landowners in support of agriculture con conservation. Uh, you do believe that this concept, a public-private partnership, where we'd be able to fund more of these conservation programs, perhaps other programs within uh, within the Farm Bill, uh, is something that you and others would support? Obviously, without having all the details, but it, but on the, on the surface, we have a number of public-private partnerships that have worked in agriculture for quite some time. Uh, as long as both parties felt like there was the, the goals, objectives of the programs were going to be achieved, I would see that be a, a positive. Thank you. And I'm, I'm just about out of time. I'm not going to let my I'll let my time uh, expire. But I would ask that any of the other witnesses, if you've got comments on that, I would love to receive them uh, in some written form of, you know, it's the Stains Act. That, uh, the, the text is out there so you could really take a fair read and a look at it. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. The gentlewoman from Connecticut, Ms. Hayes, who is also the chair of the Subcommittee on Nutrition, Oversight, and Department Operations, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for holding this important hearing. My district is a leader in climate-smart agriculture. Our producers run small, diversified farms and often use eco-friendly practices. Our farmers are passionate about the expansion of USDA conservation programs and increasing access for small and beginning farmers. Ms. Regoza, in your testimony, you described how you built your farm from one to 15 acres over time and that you now produce 40 different crops on your land. That is very impressive growth. But you also described that when applying to USDA programs to help aid your expansion, you found that applications are designed for large commodity farmers who grow one or two crops. My question for you today is what are some of your recommendations for making these application processes easier for small diversified farms like yours? Thank you, Ms. Hayes. I would recommend that the application process is simplified or that we can input our data in units that make sense for us. For example, we had to convert our 100-foot beds of spinach into yield per acre um, units, and we sold in bunches or bundles and converting that to pounds. That's just one example of the, the work that we had to do, and we work off-farm jobs as well, and so that's a burden for applicants. Um, so I would recommend having those applications um, more flexible so that we can input the data in terms that we, we use. Also, I would recommend having market prices available, just gathering more data on organic pricing. And I know we had to present a lot of that information ourselves. And so just more information available for officers that are helping um, 
uh, for loans, for example, and other programs. Thank you. That's very helpful and in line with what I'm hearing from farmers in my own district. In your testimony, you described how you provided technical assistance to other farmers in your areas, particularly those um, who had misconceptions about eligibility and had small farms much like yours. What are some ways that you think we can strengthen outreach and education for young and beginning farmers? And where do you think the misconceptions about eligibility come from? What I found is that many of the small scale farmers assumed that these programs were for large farmers and that they wouldn't be eligible because their revenue was uh, very small compared to large farms. So also they didn't know or consider the, the application process to be worth the time because sometimes those applications are lengthy and because of the, the return, they felt like it wasn't uh, something they could invest time into. And I would recommend just having those cooperative agreements with uh, organizations like National Young Farmers um, that can relate better with young farmers that already have established relationships, can improve outreach, and also having resources available online for farmers to research. I mean, a lot of our farmers are online right now, the young farmers. So just having those resources online, the application available online would also increase participation. Well, thank you so much for all of the work you've done here in this area, especially to educate young farmers. That is near and dear and so important to me. Uh, my last question is farmers in my district. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ms. Regosa. But farmers in my district are passionate about expanding conservation programs in the next farm bill. Many have supported a double funding of programs and are most interested in increasing funding for the environmental quality incentive programs, conservation stewardship programs, and agriculture conservation easement programs. Senator Heidkamp, can you describe the impact that doubling conservation programs in the next farm bill would have specifically for small farmers and new and beginning farmers? Quickly. I mean, it would be huge. One thing that we should be looking at is how many of these programs are oversubscribed, which means there's so many more people who want to access them. And so we've got to get more adapters. We've got to not leave, as uh, as the last speaker said, the early adapters behind, like the people in your state who are already engaged in these kinds of practices. But um, basically, you know, we, we, we had a long discussion at the task force. My personal position was, you know, whatever, whoever wants in these conservation programs should get in these conservation programs and up the ante and create greater incentives. Now we recognize that there's budget constraints and, and uh, so the task force didn't make that bold of a recommendation, but I totally agree with you. It's critical that we get more adapters in and that we do more encouragement um, for the great programs we already have. Let's use the tools we have. Let's uh, fund them appropriately. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Mr. Chair, I apologize. My time has expired. I yield back. Thank you. Yes, thank you. The gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Austin Scott, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I will uh, I'll try to be significantly briefer than that. Uh, I want to point out a couple of things uh, briefly. One is that approximately 12% of the U.S. farms these are farms that have more than $250,000 in revenue, account for 
somewhere around 90% of the food supply in the United States. I think as we push forward with these things, while we need to uh, provide additional support for beginning young and small farmers, we need to make sure that that is not being done at the expense of uh, the U.S. And, and candidly, the global food supply. Uh, I also want to point out to my colleagues something that I think is very important. President Zelensky met with uh, Congress this morning. He showed tremendous leadership. Uh, one of the things that I do not think is being discussed enough is the fact that Ukrainian farmers put 50 million metric tons of corn and wheat into the global food supply. Trade in the Black Sea is closed. Russia and uh, Belarus are responsible for, they're the number two and the number three producer of potash in the world. If our crops inside the United States do not have access to fertilizer, then the yields inside the United States and, and, and other major food producers will go down. And, and Chairman, my, my ask is that over the next couple of weeks that we as the Ag Committee would have a hearing on the potential reduction in the global food supply and the impact of hunger and the geopolitical uh, stability around the world as, as we push forward over the next couple of weeks. And so I don't have a specific question for the, the panel. I have, I have a couple of generals in my office that I intend to speak to uh, right now about that same issue. But I do think all of us need to be aware of the, the unrest that comes from widespread hunger in the world and recognize that, that Ukraine puts 50 million metric tons of food into into the global food supply and that's how much they export and it's not going to be there this coming year the russian exports are not going to be there this coming year and it's just something i think we as the ag committee should have a hearing on and with that mr chairman uh thank you for allowing me the time to make that statement and i look forward to continued discussions with the committee on this and let me just uh say um uh, mr scott that we as a committee are moving forward. Um, we know that the farmers in uh, Ukraine may not be able to plant this spring because of the fighting. We also know that some parts of Ukraine will not be capable of being planted because of the damage of this terrible and wrong Russian invasion. And also, I will be asking you and others of my colleagues to join me in sending a letter to Secretary Vilsack to bring some additional tools to help address this humanitarian crisis that is now taking place as a result of this terrible, awful Russian invasion. So I look forward to working with you on that, and your points are well-spoken and well-taken. We on the Agriculture Committee will be out front and doing all we can to make sure that we do not have a hunger crisis. You point out well the uh, position of Ukraine and Russia in terms of wheat, in terms of fertilizer, 66% of all that fertilizer is produced right in that area. And so we're mindful of it. Thank you for your Chairman. comments. And now the gentleman from California, Mr. <laughs> Costa, who is also the chair of our subcommittee on livestock and foreign agriculture, is now recognized for five minutes. 
Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for holding this important hearing today as it relates to America's <clears throat> contribution and efforts as it relates to climate change. Um, and I, too, want to uh, commend uh, not only uh, uh, Mr. Scott's comments as it relates to the disruption of <clears throat> food uh, products, wheat production, and, and fertilizer products that come from Ukraine, uh, but your uh, sensitivity and acknowledgement of it as well that we as the Ag Committee and the impacts on uh, foreign agriculture need to be uh, conscious of as we plan ahead. Uh, the pariah Putin has invaded uh, Ukraine, uh, and in, in my view, he's a, a war criminal, and we have to support Ukraine. But that aside, we also need to know the impacts, not just to people who need to eat in that part of the world, but its impact on American agriculture as well. Uh, I want to get back to the specific uh, testimony of our witnesses here. Um, and Dr. Hummonson, you and I have worked together. Your testimony, I thought, was very important in a couple of areas that I'd like you to quickly comment on. Um, I think agricultural uh, production in America has done a lot to deal with the impacts of its carbon footprint and climate change. Uh, ag energy is continuing to expand exponentially as we make uh, changes. Um, and, and whether we call it green energy or use of methane or a whole host of sources, uh, it really results in best management practices, in my view. You and I have a lot of experience in, uh, as, as you noted, in uh, over the last 10, 15 years of looking on in California how we, we do our part. I'm wondering if you would like to talk about some other examples, you talked about the solar efforts of covering our, 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 some of our water conveyance facilities. Under the category of not reinventing the wheel, what best management practice would you say uh, we can build upon for next year's farm bill uh, as we look at uh, uh, expanding American agriculture's ability to deal with our part? And I, too, push back, as, as, as Rep Representative Thompson indicated, and I think some inaccurate reporting, uh, and I would really invite uh, the New York Times and others to come out to California and see what we've been doing, uh, because I think they need to cover all of the aspects of, of what American agriculture is doing. You care to comment? Yes, thank you, Congressman Costa. I appreciate that question. You know, here in the U.S., we have a, a powerful track record that is world-renowned in converting science into actionable best management practices. We have nations from all over the wor world approaching us on how do we do that? How, how does our land-grant system, our cooperative extension, our, our NRCS, all of our various programs, how, how do they do it? Because we do a great job, and we have. And I think that's important. You've heard from all the speakers today about the importance of the voluntary incentive-based programs. And which so how we, do we build upon that with well, Nature's Farm things. Bill and with the bipartisan infrastructure package that we've passed? Well, two things. I mean, we've heard some folks uh, concerned about investments that USDA is currently making in these. Personally, I think we have got to make these inventives. If we want our farmers to be able to deal with extreme weather and avoid additional regulations, we've got to create incentive programs that really have some meat on the bones, which includes the kind of funding that USDA is attempting to put out there. 
I would also say that we've got to leverage our existing programs to the degree possible and particularly cross-pollinate them. You know, for example, in California, we're really working hard to create a biomass manufacturing sector. We're working closely with our forests because there's a lot of volume there. What we're missing is the infrastructure, supply chains, and capability to do something with that biomass. If we can get that in place, our farmers are going to be able to utilize that same infrastructure and manufacturing for agricultural biomass and start turning a waste product into a profit center. I have limited time left here. I would uh, suggest you put together a list of these various proposals and prioritize them on how we might, with the examples that you cited, how we combine these best management practices as we look at next year's farm bill. Uh, you touched upon the definition of rural, and this has been a problem, I think, that you and I have both dealt with. We have a lot of rural America that don't qualify under the definition, federal definitions of rural. What would you suggest on how we deal with that? We have got to start raising the limits on uh, eligibility for a lot of these programs on population. And we've also got to stop using this antiquated rural versus metropolitan. The way it's currently used right now, if you have one community in a county that has a population of 50,000, the entire county is labeled metropolitan. You look at many of our counties that are huge agricultural counties, it's ludicrous to have them considered metropolitan, especially when you consider the the amount of agricultural product from them. I concur. Thank you. Thank you. The gentleman from Arkansas, Mr. Crawford, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I'd also like to associate myself with the comments that uh, Mr. Austin Scott made earlier with regard to the situation in Ukraine and the impact that that can have um, here in the United States with regard to ag production. And that brings up a question I want to direct to Dr. Outlaw. And it has to do with... Um, you know, fertilizer exports to the West. The Russians just announced a suspension in fertilizer exports to the West. We know that that's driving input costs. Uh, and, and meanwhile, India, the world's second biggest producer of rice, wheat, and sugar, is set to spend $20 billion this year, $20 billion, to provide free fertilizer to their farmers. So everyone here is aware of the staggering increase uh, in, for inputs on the farm. Fuel is one of them, as I mentioned, fertilizer. Um, pest control, seed machinery. I want to say that for most field crops, there's been, there's been a corresponding or an even greater increase in their commodity prices. But as you know, this is not the case for rice. Prices are only slightly up, not nearly enough to cover rising input costs. India is spending billions of dollars, as I mentioned, to flood the world with cheap and dirty rice while taking the lead on emissions and distorting the world rice market. I hear U.S. rice farmers are even starting to decline, maybe even go out of business. Can you comment on the situation for rice? And then I have another question we'll, I'll ask about uh, getting our priorities in order with so much focus on things like cover crops. Sure. Uh, as, as most of the committee knows, we do uh, work with all types of producers, and, and among all the different types of pr production systems we work with, uh, rice is the one that is actually not doing very well and not projected to do very well over the next few years, mainly because uh, they they don't benefit from the higher prices to offset all these high costs that, are, that are, you mentioned uh, all I can say is that uh, the, the safety net that we have that was constructed with uh, uh, reference prices that were, were put in place in the 2014 Farm Bill that we're using costs because our group helped a lot with that from uh, basically 2012 time period is well out of date. So we, we, need to, we need to start thinking about 
ways that the uh, reference price could be ratcheted up to take to uh, take some of the pressure off producers. Let me ask you this: Would you support indexing uh, reference prices? And once we, I mean, we our, the current farm bill. I think the reference prices, the baseline is 2012. Uh, obviously, not adequate to meet the demands of input costs today and production costs. Uh, it, would indexing be a good option in this in this scenario? We've actually looked at indexing over the last uh, ten years many different times for for different members of this committee, and and there are approaches that will work. You have to be really careful which indices you tie, tie these movements to, but it certainly would work and offset some of the cost, although be realistic that the indices kind of, uh, they're delayed, but, but it would still be better than nothing. Right. So, I mean, I, I understand that, that um, you can't index something in, based on a future projection. It'd have to be based on a, probably a three-year history or something like that, rolling average, and I get that. But the fact that we can have a conversation about the potential for indexing to address this shortfall, I think, is worth, uh, worth mentioning. You know, on the, on the topic of climate change, I think it's important that in, in the context of agriculture, when we start talking about climate change, that we, we kind of establish this, this, I guess, baseline, if you will, and the difference between environmental activism and active environmentalism. So for folks on the outside that have a, a, an agenda that don't really understand agriculture, let me just be clear. You know, farmers produce on, on land that they derive their income from. It's in their interest to achieve a degree of sustainability so that they can produce next year and the year after and the year after, and also to hand that land down to their, to their families so they can continue to produce. So any attempt to malign producers, I think, is grossly misguided uh, when we rely on our American ag producers to be the mainstay of our food source globally. And think about what's going on in Europe right now in Ukraine and, and, and the impact that's having. Historically, the United States has been the breadbasket of the world. Um, but we have engaged in policy that now encumbers U.S. producers to the degree that we can no longer be the breadbasket of the world. And when we see the calamity that's taking place in Ukraine and there, the potential there for, for them to not be able to provide for themselves and the impact it's having on their economy as, as a, the bulk of their production goes to uh, the Middle East and Africa, um, as, as Mr. Austin Scott suggested, there is the potential uh, for global hunger, that we don't need to exacerbate that problem by engaging in misguided environmental policy. And I appreciate you guys being here today. Thank you. Thank you. And now the gentlewoman from North Carolina, Ms. Adams, who is also the vice chair of the Committee on Agriculture, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, uh, Chairman Scott and Ranking Member <clears throat> Thompson for hosting the hearing today. Thank you to the witnesses for being here. Uh, Senator Hyken, uh, welcome back to Congress. Uh, black uh, tribal family and rural farmers and ranchers who need structural reforms that ensure fair market prices and infrastructure supporting transitions uh, to reformative farming. Uh, so what types of initiatives does the USDA plan on designing uh, to incentivize better formative practices for socially and economically disadvantaged and rural communities? 
I, I think you know, uh, Congresswoman, uh, that uh, uh, USDA has made this a new priority where it hasn't been a priority in the past. And uh, that's a tragedy. I, I can't speak for the Bipartisan Policy Center who I'm representing, but I think people need to be educated on the land um, restrictions that families face in traditional, you know, kind of communities where um, there was way too much um um, paternalism. Uh, that's true for Native American families. That's true for some traditional African-American farmers. And so as we look at USDA practices and how we can reach out and make sure that farming is an equal opportunity for everyone to be successful and historic, as you know, both in Native communities and in African-American communities, um, certainly the court system has ruled that there have been past inequities. Let's, let's not just try and, uh, uh, you know, think about those past inequities and how we fix those problems. Let's think about how we can move forward um, to make farming uh, available, opportunities available to everyone. But one of the things that I think is, is critical is this workforce, is this ability to get access to information. And as the chairman has said, what role can traditional uh, tribal colleges, our tribal colleges in North Dakota do a great job in reaching out to local ranchers and farmers. They have collaborations, which can make such a difference for uh, Native American, in our case, usually ranchers. But let's look at right. what the traditional um, colleges and campuses could do to provide right. that assistance. Great, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Humnison. Uh, unless there's a, a real systemic change, we now know that emissions from agriculture will make it impossible to achieve the Paris Agreement of limiting global warming to, to no more than two degrees of Celsius. We currently fall short of the target 1.5 degrees Celsius at this current rate. Global food systems are reliant on us to meet this goal. So if the climate crisis continues to proceed in the manner predicted, how will it impact the nutritional value of food? Thank you for the question. Um, that, that's a that's a great question because we're we're still doing analysis on exactly what that does mean. Um, obviously, as crops start moving because of changes in ecosystems due to extreme weather and climate, it's going to make it tougher for farmers to be able to produce some of those crops that are needed. Um, we're also finding that. Uh, the nutritional quality of some food. For example, if, if um, certain crops like stone fruit don't have a freezing point so that they can be produced, we start losing those kind of crops that are so important to our diet. So we, we're still working on that issue, but I think what's really important is that we make available to farmers the ability to see that transition and move towards being able to continue to produce those crops. Great, thank you. So Mr. Connor. Uh, in your testimony, you mentioned that food waste accounts for 8% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. Your team new attrition program provides education about food waste loss prevention. So would you please explain on the climate impact uh, uh, the, the food waste loss prevention education uh, has? What does it have on that? I appreciate the, uh, the question. I, I would just say it's one of our recommendations that are uh, part of the Food and Ag Climate Alliance. It makes some sense if you think about it. If you produce food, you have the inputs, you know, the, the labor, uh, everything that goes into the production of that food, and it simply gets discarded. You know, the, the, the waste there alone is uh, intolerable in that circumstance, but then you add the disposal, 
you know, in the creation of greenhouse gas emissions that comes with uh, having that product in landfills and other areas. Uh, you know, it, it's something that needs to be addressed, and we are proposing a, a pretty extensive uh, education and training program that begins with uh, USDA feeding efforts to uh, uh, attempt to do all that we can to minimize that because we think there are gains that can be made in greenhouse gas emissions by simply uh, better utilizing the very food that our uh, farmers are putting on the table for you. Thank you, sir. Mr. Chairman, I'm out of time. I yield back. Thank you. The gentleman from Tennessee, Mr. Dejarlay, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I appreciate our witnesses being here today. Uh, you know, as we struggle with the, the trucking shortage and supply chain issues, uh, we're experiencing 40-year high inflation, record fuel prices, fertilizer shortages, uh, crippling and overburdensome EPA regulations that creates even uh, more uncertainty. Uh, we're sitting here today having a second climate change hearing, and I guess it's a little frustrating considering our farmers are client champions, but uh, Mr. or Dr. Outlaw, I'm sorry, uh, some of the environmental community have continued to villainize farmers and ranchers, even though modern American agriculture is the most sustainable in the world and clearly provides climate benefits. Our producers are great stewards of their land as modern agriculture delivers benefits including reduced inputs, healthier uh, soil and water, and increased carbon sequestration. Do you believe that farmers and ranchers are currently being given the credit or recognition that they deserve for practices that generate climate benefits? No, I do not. Uh, as you said per perfectly, uh, our, our producers Spend, their livelihood is, is in keeping the land in the most productive manner they can. And uh, over my 30-plus year career doing policy, I have witnessed a lot of different groups take aim at commodity producers because they would either want the money or they want to, uh, to try to bust everything up so they're, they're, that things are different. Um, in my mind, just like you said, I believe that the, our producers are the most uh, productive in the, in the world, and they do have a, 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 a spot where they absolutely care about the environment, they absolutely care about productivity and the, uh, keeping the land in, in production through, for, for their children to, to take over. Good. Well, let me stay with you. We know producers are facing a lot of uncertainty this year, particularly in light of the situation in eastern Ukraine, or eastern Europe, rather. And uh, while some of the headwinds farmers are facing may be outside of our control, there are common sense decisions we make here at home that could help our farmers, such as producing more domestic energy or ensuring that producers have access to the chemistries they need rather than letting EPA pull labels based on unsound science. Uh, despite high commodity prices, the farmers I talk to are concerned about the margin they will make in light of soaring costs. Uh, speaking from your experience with the 94 representative farms, when farmers are facing narrow or negative margins, what are some of the areas that they cut back on and how does this affect production and potential climate impacts? That's been the, the one thing that I didn't understand about the environmental community attacking production agriculture because if they're not successful, if not making money, the one of the places they do tend to cut corners on is some of the, the conservation practices uh, that they would, they would do no, otherwise. So that is one of the areas where, obviously, practice-wise, they, they tend to cut back on doing the, the tiling for their land or they're doing other terracing, other, other practices that would make the land more productive in the future. 
but they also cut back on the family living withdrawals that they take from their operation, just to trying to make the uh, uh, ends meet. I appreciate that. Uh, and to our other witnesses, um, broadband is an issue that was touched upon in today's testimonies. When this committee speaks on broadband connectivity, it's uh, normally a rural development issue. Uh, I believe this needs to be part of the climate solutions discussion. Can uh, either of you comment on how increased broadband connectivity would in could increase innovation and produ productivity for farmers at the field level? And wouldn't this be a huge step forward as it relates to precision agriculture technology. Yeah, thank you. Um, we've got some exciting new technologies coming online, but a great many of those do require bandwidth, and that is a huge missing piece in much of rural America. Um, we're working closely with a variety of public and private partners to try to get repeaters and boosters and, you know, increase that bandwidth out there. But we're also trying to work with entities like our national labs and some of our very uh, strong engineering programs to really reduce the need for the bandwidth and some of this technology, too. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to funding and having the infrastructure out there. Okay. In 30 seconds, if you'd care to comment. Um, Congressman, certainly so, you've identified a key problem here. Broad broadband is absolutely necessary for modern agriculture, for precision technologies that are a necessary part of any climate debate. Without it, uh, we are, uh, you know, we have one hand tied behind our back. Uh, well, thank you all. And Mr. Chairman, I yield back. If, if I could just, if I could just comment, I, I think we talk about broadband, but let's not leave wireless behind. Because having the ability to go out into the farm, you know, and, and, and use your cell phone is critical, too. Thank you. Thank you very much. The gentlewoman from Virginia, Ms. Spanberger, who is also the chair of the Subcommittee on Conservation and Forestry, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you so very much, Mr. Chairman, and to our witnesses, thank you for being here. Uh, and certainly as the chair of the Conservation and Forestry Subcommittee, uh, every hearing we have, we are highlighting the role and the important role uh, that our farmers and producers have, not just in feeding America, feeding the world, but also uh, in nurturing our planet. Certainly, as Ranking Member Thompson said, farmers are climate champions. And so I, I am a little bit surprised to hear so many comments about um, uh, you know, unnamed groups that are um, challenging farmers because in this committee and in our subcommittee and with the witnesses we have today and the farms I visit across my district, what we talk about every single time is how farmers are leading the way in practices uh, that are so important, not just to their bottom line, not just to their community, not just to the health of their land, but to our country and the world. And in fact, there are documentaries talking about how important and how vital and integral and transformative our farmers, our producers are. They're leading the way, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. Uh, so I want to thank them for that. But I I do want to talk about the issues that they face and the challenges that they face. Um, certainly, and I'll, I'll turn to you first, Senator Heitkamp. Um, when we're talking about some of the, you know, incredible conservation practices, regenerative farming practices, rotational grazing practices, um, so many of these practices 
you know, can be trial and error. There's so much important research going on, but yet there's attrition on the ground uh, for trained technical assistance providers who really can provide site-specific, soil-specific solutions to implement conservation practices effectively. We know between FY 2004 and FY 2018, staffing levels at the NRCS have declined 19%. And unlike other federal agencies, as I know you're aware, Senator, um, 98% of NRCS staff are located outside Washington, D.C. They are located by our farmers and producers. They are located in our rural communities across America. And as such, when we have attrition at, at NRCS, it is felt disproportionately by those who are seeking uh, support and help as they implement conservation practices on their land. So certainly, Senator, um, as part of your testimony, you focused on the need to expand technical assistance through workforce development. I'm personally an advocate for increased funding to provide higher pay to NRCS uh, employees, but I'm concerned that increased salaries alone certainly won't contend with the challenge. Um, what steps should we be considering taking as we're looking towards the 2023 Farm Bill so that we can better develop a pipeline of, uh, of, of staff? Um, and how could we potentially leverage federally funded resources such as land-grant universities uh, to this end? And, and I'll, I'll start with the senator. Well, I, I, I'm, a, I'm such a believer that we have to keep the people who understand rural America in rural America. And in order to do that, we have to make sure that they can earn a living. But uh, Congresswoman, uh, Congresswoman I, I'm, just, I, I'm just urging you all not to reduce local staff. If you want to get this done, if you want to expand American agricultural productivity, do what we've always done so well, our land-grant colleges, getting our extension agents out there. Let's build a pipeline from FFA. One of the growing uh, um, uh, groups, uh, youth groups, is really Future Farmers of America. Yeah. They're our future leaders. They care. And so, you know, let's make the commitment today to keeping people um, helping uh, rural American rural farmers. Thank you so much, Senator. And Dr. Humiston, uh, if you'd care to comment uh, on that question at all from your perspective as well. Well, the Senator uh, did a great job on that. I'd add to it that that pipeline is really critical and we've yeah. got to start young. You know, one of the challenges we have is we actually have a lot of great jobs in the agriculture and natural resources sectors, but too much of the public think the only jobs are farmer or farm worker. Yeah. There's literally thousands of other jobs, and we've got to get people to understand that and start looking to those. So we're partnering up with our community colleges. We're starting in grade school with 4-H. I'm a 4-H'er I'm a as well as a future Farmer of America alumni, and it really does make a difference even to get urban and suburban kids in interested in looking at the agricultural sciences and opportunities throughout the supply chain. Things like regional food systems gets people interested. Look how many cooking shows are on TV now. <laughs> Thank you so much. Certainly in uh, one of the counties I represent, well, many of the counties I represent uh, have tremendous programs in the high school, but one of the counties has just implemented a specialty center that will begin next year uh, focused on environmental science, focused on soil health, uh, and hopefully will create a pipeline uh, for for folks going out into the field, um, either continuing to work their own lands or support others. Um, uh, my time has expired. I have so many more questions. I'm grateful to the witnesses for being here. And Mr. Chairman, I yield back. The gentleman from California, Mr. LaMalfa, is Thank recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me go right to Dr. Humiston. Um, 
we're talking about fuel loads and forestry, et cetera, and obviously a very, very big uh, concern in my district, in California, the Western states, as you know, um, just one fire burned approximately a million acres last year, the Dixie Fire and many others in the six digit range. So your comments are very timely and very appreciated in that regard. Um, so how do we further the, uh, the utilization of these products? You mentioned it's the end use that's the problem. Mm -hmm. The really turning it into something. I mean, we can harvest it, we can haul it, we can stack it somewhere, we can put it on a deck somewhere, but there doesn't seem to be a home for utilizing it. So does that really boil down to an investment in biomass plants to make electricity or what, what's on your mind on that? Well, I, I'm not a fan of biomass plants to produce electricity only because it costs several times more than producing electricity in other ways. But we've got a lot of bioproducts that could be profitable centers for both forestry and agriculture. Bioplastics, cellulosic nanofibers, biofuels, great many programs, and advanced wood products. The challenge is the lack of infrastructure to get it from the forest or the farm into that final product. And I'm thrilled to say in California, we've done some really exciting things recently. I've been co-chairing an effort with the rural county representatives of California, RCRC, which is a statewide group of the 39 rural county supervisors in our mm -hmm. state, mm -hmm. who have actually themselves stood up a financial entity and created a supply chain from forest through manufacturing to markets in Asia for wood pellets. Um, and now, because of that example, we're able to get other folks to look at these same kind of supply chains and sync, link, link them up in, in um, frameworks that allow us to do more of that, both for forest and ag biomass. Now, what, what's the foreign use of those wood pellets? It's basically uh, Japan and South Korea trying to wean themselves off nuclear. And it's a short-term solution. Wood pellets are not a long-term fix, but they're a great solution in the next five or ten years. Longer term, we really have to be looking at the use of biomass for, as I said, uh, bioplastics and other uses, and particularly the advanced wood products, which sequester carbon for decades in our buildings. Uh, why can't we be looking at it for generating electricity in our own country more when we're having to, uh, you know, we're having a situation with natural gas right now and, and with uh, coal and things like that? Why wouldn't this be? Uh, and, and, and indeed, the, the bugaboo you ran into with uh, the other more seen as more green with solar and wind is they're not 24-7 sources of power. They're, uh, they're at best, you know, a portion yeah. of the day. There's a role for biomass being burned to produce electricity to be part of that um, power 24-7, where wind and solar sometimes is not available. There's definitely a role for that. And there's a real role for cogen, where you've got biomass being utilized for electricity that's been used within a very close arena, which often can pencil out. But in the past, we've done work for several years now where it's been very clear that producing electricity from biomass, even from established plants, does cost several times more than that same electricity from other sources. It's just not the most economically efficient use. And frankly, as we try to clean up the huge amount of biomass in our forest, I believe we've got to find profitable ways to do that or we won't get the job done. Well, certainly as far behind as we are on our forest management, uh, fire suppression is costing us billions and billions more each year. The, the costs we're seeing in air quality, water quality, 
loss of wildlife, loss of the asset itself, I think it would be not out of line for the federal government to pay to remove this material and turn it into something that could be used. Um, just talk about it from a point of forest health. Mm -hmm. Actually, it, you're, you're right on. If we could get our forests back to a healthier state, which actually means considerably less tree density and biomass than we currently have in most of our forests in the western states, we would have not only less risk of fire, we could produce more water. We've got studies showing that the Sierra could produce 15% or more water than it currently does because of unhealthy forests. And then, of course, there's wildlife habitat, there's recreational opportunities, which is a huge economic sector in many of our western states, all of which would benefit from healthier forests. Music to my ears on that water side there, because obviously we're in a very dire, we ought to be talking about more of that in this committee, I'd suggest, Mr. Chairman, is that uh, California is not going to be producing many crops with acres being zeroed out this year. We have mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of acres being zeroed out for the second year of the row, that number's increasing. We're not going to have these products that all of the, our country relies on from California, so that's big. So thank you for your testimony. Thank you. Thank you. The gentlewoman from Ohio, Ms. Brown, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson for holding this hearing. Um, and thank you to the witnesses for joining us today to review the role of the USDA programs in addressing the urgent climate crisis. Um, Congress considered a and passed the 2018 Farm Bill on a bipartisan basis, and it provided significant investments to incentivize sound farming practices that not only reduce pollution, but also make our farms more resilient to the changing climate. We must recognize that climate change is a clear and imminent threat to our planet. As stewards of this planet, we have the moral responsibility to protect the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the world we leave behind. To stay ahead, of the, to stay ahead and competitive, we must be smart about how we use and manage our farmlands. And American farmers and ranchers can be an active partner in this endeavor. I look forward to working with all of you as we look for look for climate solutions that work for everyone. Mr. Connor, what do you believe are some of the most helpful tools from the 2018 Farm Bill to help producers address climate concerns while also supporting their operations? And how can they be built upon to better work for producers? I'll answer that two ways, Congresswoman. First, I, I think the 2018 Farm Bill provided an excellent foundation in terms of the Title II programs. Uh, this is technical assistance, this is financial assistance for farmers to do uh, good things uh, on their farms that may be just on the edge of viability in terms of economics, and uh, the, the, the bill provided great assistance. Many of our FACA recommendations that we put forth today uh, and talked about today uh, follow the model from, from uh, those programs in the 2018 and past farm bills. Uh, we believe producers are very comfortable with those. We believe uh, they are uh, programs that, that help uh, a variety of farmers, and, and we would, uh, you know, for that reason, are encouraging uh, additional resources be added in the next Farm Bill uh, to Title II and a number of those efforts that have been identified today. Thank you very much. Um, while we continue to fight climate crisis together, we must ensure that resources are available to everyone, particularly underserved farmers. So Ms. Ragoza, um, you have used a number of programs within the USDA, and you've touched on some of the barriers that you faced um, while using these programs. 
um, as it relates to the programs that you have used, um, what, pro what programs do you think work well and which do you believe need improvement to better help historically underserved farmers? Yes, the programs that worked really well for our farm were the equip programs. So for example, for conservation, for cover cropping, um, we participated in the organic program. What worked well for us was that we were able to um, apply those programs to all of our acreage. Um, and I think what we can do to improve is to make them uh, like I mentioned, the cost available or the, the funding available upfront. Um, also for many of these programs um, is an issue for many farmers is land access. So we can implement these programs, um, allowing the farmer to have a um, short-term lease and be able to access these opportunities as well. Because many young farmers have short-term leases, um, we need to be able to um, have that as an option um, to implement these programs. Yeah, I just chime in on that also very quickly. At our farm, we utilize EQIP as well as a CSP contract. And I'd like to just echo what has been mentioned here before about the fact that those have helped us try some practices here on the ground who have been beneficial to our resiliency, but the application process itself is tedious and very time consuming. And is you definitely need to have technical assistance to go through there. We're very lucky in the county that we live in that we do have expertise um, to help us, but I don't see those folks um, staying around in this area. They'll move around to other areas, which is fine, but I do worry about their replacements. So I would like to just um, say that Senator Heitkamp's issues about uh, using all the different programs and colleges at all different levels throughout the country to uh, get people involved in technical assistance um, it, to provide it on the land from a food point of view as well as from a production point of view. Thank you. Thank you, and um, my time has expired, so thank you so much, and I yield back. Thank you. The gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Davis, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate this hearing happening, but my farmers and producers are not talking to me about climate change issues. They're talking to me about the ever-soaring input costs, the how is this administration, how are we in Congress addressing those high costs and inflationary pressures? What is the Biden administration doing to, to tone down the rampant spending? And reports just this week show average gas prices in the U.S. have risen 22%, and that's just in two weeks. Uh, and yet the Biden administration refuses to uphold the renewable fuel standard, uh, an immediate solution to lower emissions and reduce costs at the pump. Inflation is now at over 8%. Ag input costs are rising, as I mentioned, and showing no signs of slowing. And it's not just that. This administration has abandoned our farmers in so many ways, be it through pushing a new regulatory, re regulatory scheme with their WOTUS rewrite, abandoning the President Trump's navigable waters protection rule, creating new obstacles for pesticide use, and failing to follow through on existing trade deals. The ag economy is hurting across the board. They are concerned about whether or not they're going to be able to afford to plant a crop this year. And look, we can always 
talk about addressing climate change issues. I mean, America deserves credit and our farmers deserve a lot more credit for what they've done to reduce greenhouse emissions. Can any of the witnesses please tell me and, and speak to the way inflation, these input costs, and maybe even these reckless policies make it impossible to predict what a market looks like months from now, let alone a year from now when we start talking about this farm bill. Our farmers want to know if they're going to be able to survive before we get to the next farm bill. Mr. Connery, would you like to respond? Congressman Davis, thanks. Thanks for uh, that opportunity. I, I do not disagree with you that the, the coffee shop talk today is not climate change. It's, it's world events. It's fertilizer prices. It's a number of things that are literally, you know, sort of in your face. And, and I concur with that. I will say, though, that um, we find great interest uh, to our, from our producers when we start talking about climate in the context of incentive-based in the, in the context of, of additional resources and revenues in your pocket. And, you know, that is in desperate need out there in rural America, given the challenges that we face. Farmers need a better shake. And we're doing this uh, right now to try and give them that. And we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here addressing these concerns if it didn't have that strong, strong potential associated with it. On the biofuels front, you know, I, I'm, I'm well aware of what you're saying. You know, the, the number of um, uh, facilities out there that are offering, you know, the higher uh, octane uh, uh, blends is dismal uh, out there in rural America. And, we, you know, we're missing a great opportunity there. You know, we, we, we need that infrastructure, you know, and some of those investments we are talking about in, in this climate debate, you know, to, to raise that numbers, because right now we cannot have much of a market impact when I believe the figure is like 3,000 retail outlets out of uh, uh, Tens of thousands of outlets actually offer these higher blends, and, and that that's just totally inadequate. We've got to change. It, it. is Re retail outlets are not going to invest in in offering new choices if they don't know if the administration is going to follow the existing law under the renewable fuel standard. Uh, there, there's no certainty. How in the world can you expect somebody in the private sector to make a business decision when they don't know if decisions here in Washington are going to actually follow the law? And that's what's frustrating to us. I mean, we've heard promises from administrations in the past, in the current administration, about what they're going to do to help, help our ethanol producers, what they're going to do to help our, our farms. They're, they're not doing it. And, and that's what's frustrating. We're in, a, we're in a kind of a spin cycle of whether or not to be able to get these products out into the marketplace. Mr. Outlaw, did you want to make a comment on the input costs or any of the other issues that our farmers are facing? Well. Obviously, we've done a, a couple of studies, uh, one from for uh, Congresswoman Letlow on the impact of fertilizer prices on all of our farms. And uh, it's been it's been huge. Uh, and we did some analysis just looking at nitrogen as well. And it was big. Uh, the honest answer is, is that, that I hope that the prices that the futures market is reflecting come true, because if not, we're going to have a big disaster because the prices, the costs have gone up uh, on, in some cases. 20 to 40 percent across the board for different types of commodities, and that will put a lot of people in very dire, dire straits. It's going to put them in dire straits. Imagine, you know, if we had to compete against our, 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 our global competitor uh, where we see war ravaging in, in Europe, and imagine if there weren't any issues with the Brazilian soybean crop. Um, but that cannot be permanent, and we cannot allow these costs to be permanent. I, I yield back, Mr. Chair. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Mr. Davis. And I do want to assure you that President Biden has not abandoned our farmers. And as you recall, Secretary Vilsack was in here and spoke very pointedly uh, about the things that this administration is doing. The gentlewoman from New Hampshire, Ms. Custer, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for holding this important hearing, the very first hearing dedicated specifically to addressing climate change in our committee. I'm excited to continue this discussion and as we look to how we can continue to utilize the Farm Bill to reduce emissions in the agriculture sector and maximize how our farm and forest lands store carbon. I always like to begin these conversations by recognizing the incredible work that farmers and foresters in New Hampshire and across the country are already doing to mitigate climate change. And as we look ahead to the reauthorization of the Farm Bill next year, this is an excellent opportunity to take stock of what is working in the current Farm Bill and what we can do to improve and better serve our farmers and producers. So in that vein, I believe one of the most important things we can do to address climate change is to keep farmland as farms and forest land as forest. That's no easy task. In states like mine where land values are rising and development demands are significant, these factors can box out young and beginning farmers in particular. Thankfully, in New Hampshire, we have a wonderful organization like Land for Good that do an incredible job providing technical assistance to beginning farmers and helping them connect with available agricultural land. But the fact remains, we need to do more to focus our nationwide effort around farm transitions and ensuring that the next generation of farmers get off to the right start. Ms. Regosa, your testimony perfectly exemplifies this need. It would have been easy for you to get discouraged and find another line of work when land access presented so many hurdles, but I'm glad you hung in there. You mentioned you were able to make use of FSA farm ownership loans, but could you comment on other ways that we can grow the farm bill to help with these land access challenges? And what is the National Young Farmer Coalition's vision for making access easier for new farmers. Yes, so for me, for my farm, it was very important for us to be able to have access to land. Um, we did struggle to apply, and so the application process could be streamlined. We appreciate the new the microloan program that's helping many farmers get started. So we would like to see a continuation in, in those programs for microloans with the streamlined application process um, for farmers to access those programs. Also equitable land transition so that farmers can be able to transfer into land and have access to those, those as well. And great, great. yes, thank you. Go ahead. Um, I also, uh, sorry, our time is short, so I'm going to cover the role of family forest operations as well in addressing climate change. New Hampshire is the second most forested state in the nation, and we know very well that working forests already play an important role as carbon sinks. Recently, the Bipartisan Policy Center's 
Farm and Forest Carbon Solutions Task Force released their policy recommendations in a thorough report that we've heard about today, I was pleased to see excellent recommendations for better utilizing forests as natural climate solutions. One recommendation that stood out to me was the need to modernize and expand our seed collection and tree nurseries. Doing so would not only help reforestation efforts in the aftermath of fires, but could also help prepare for adapting our existing forest lands to climate and weather patterns. Senator Heidekamp, I appreciate your leadership on this report and wondered if you could expand on how BPC would urge Congress to strengthen seed and nursery collections through the Farm Bill. I think that it is the single most important part of our recommendations in forestry, that we make sure that we have the feedstock, we make sure that we're building resiliency. Um, and so I would say that in the whole, I mean, we've, we've got we've to take care of our forest. We've got to stop the forest fires. We've got to look at what we're going to do to reforest our communities, and our, especially for the private landowners who are doing the job um, so adequately. I tease Saxby, I said, you know, um, we, we joke in North Dakota that our, uh, our tree is a telephone pole. And so he really, um, I think, led the way in terms of um, forestry, making sure that, that we were well, that you all were well represented. But I think that you've got to really take a look at the whole span, whether it is what's happening right now with forest fires and the impact of climate, but also how do we build back um, our force and our and our industry in a way that is going to be sustainable into the future. And so um, this this feedstock is so critical and important. And that's what we heard. And that's why we built the recommendation. Great. Thank you so much. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you. The gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Allen, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but uh, uh, as uh, has been stated here earlier, my folks back home are not uh, tuned into this uh, hearing right now. In fact, I'm going to have very few questions, but I can tell, I'm going to tell you what they're saying back home. And I'm going to tell you what I see is the biggest threat to this nation. Uh, you know, right now our world is on the edge of global upheaval, and today's hearing focuses on none of our farmers' critical issues, not a one. Two of the world's leading suppliers of wheat, corn, and fertilizers are at war. Commercial activity in Ukraine ports has not resumed since Russia's invasion, which could lead to an inability to export their commodities. Folks, my farmers are trying to figure out whether to plant. I'm begging them to plant. It's planting season, and they don't even know what fertilizer is going to cost because it's going up every single day. It is time for this administration to engage and this committee to engage. Uh, you know, we're, uh, the, the administration continues their short-sighted war on fossil fuel, uh, which has increased our dependence on foreign, uh, foreign energy. Uh, you know, what's amazing to me <coughs> is uh, we're sending $75 million a day to Russia, not counting what Europe's sending. We're financing the dadgum war. I mean, folks, you can't make this stuff up. These, uh, these attacks on production of fossil fuels here in America and our domestic greenhouse gas emissions are in, are in part responsible for, first, the global reliance on fossil fuels in Russia uh, and, and the Russian uh, war effort, 
And uh, second, uh, when it comes to the reduction of American greenhouse gas emissions, all that does uh, is uh, cause a net increase in global greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, you know, I've, I've tried to be patient with the administration. I recognize that they have their priorities. But folks, this body and this Congress and this administration better get our priorities in order. Uh, certainly one is a $30 trillion debt. You know, we're talking about spending more money, more money. Where's it going to come from? You know, to have that, you got to have national security. How about jobs in the economy? Where do you think the money comes from? Education, health care. We got a lot of issues to address here. And most of it is dealing with nutrition and the farm. Uh, right now, uh, right now, I, well, I had asked the president, 40 members signed on to a letter and asked the president to restore the previous fossil fuel uh, regulatory environment and production incentives that we had in this country that made this country energy independent and the most powerful country in the world just 18 months ago. We had an oil war between Russia and Saudi Arabia, $7 a barrel and going lower. And look at today, folks, it's out of control. And we have let this happen because we got our eye on the wrong ball. Dr. Outlaw, you know, when we idle land in the U.S., it sends a market signal to U.S. competitors to increase their production, which usually leads to more negative environmental consequences. You know, we had the situation in Brazil that plowed up half of the Zerotto, uh, vital storehouse for carbon dioxide. Do, the federal re regulators, uh, USDA, do they take into account the, the, the impact globally of this regulatory situation? I can't speak to all of that, but I, I don't believe that, that we've been focusing more on our producers, and I don't think um, that what's happening in other countries is, is uh, something that has been looked at very closely. I do know that some of the, our biggest competitors, like Brazil, have their own environmental issues. That, they, that If commodities start being traded, looking at their uh, footprint, uh, they would be in a little bit different situation uh, competitive-wise than they are currently. Okay. Uh, but no, I don't believe that. To answer your question, I don't believe so. All right. Well, I'm sorry I'm out of time. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. The gentlewoman from Maine, Ms. Pingree, is now recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chair, and, and thank you for holding this uh, important hearing. While I know um, we're all focused on the activities that are going on in Ukraine, and our hearts go out to those people and hope that we can continue to do more. We also understand that it could have a huge impact on energies, on commodity prices, on, on availability of food around the world. Um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be holding this hearing today. These are also very important issues, and I really appreciate that you're doing that. So uh, my questions, um, Senator Heidkamp, so nice to see you again. Thank you for the work that you've been doing. Um, one of the recommendations in the Bipartisan Policy Center's report was to streamline NRCS process for adopting new conservation practice standards. Currently, the practice requires stakeholders to petition for an interim practice, and then NRCS studies that interim practice for three years or more. 
This is something I've been interested in as I've been pushing for NRCS to support compost, which is finally on its way as an interim practice. But could you talk a little bit about why streamlining, streamlining the process is important as we think about climate change? And how do you think NRCS should approach developing new conservation practice standards in a way that supports innovation without undermining their scientific credibility? Well, you've already heard from the producers here that the application process is way overbearing. And yes, they, they're grateful for the help, but why? I mean, farmers don't want to be paperwork people. They want to get out and farm. And so the first thing I would look at is even on those proven programs, making sure that the application process is streamlined and available. But if we really believe that we have an emerging crisis in climate, why is it going to why, should, why shouldn't we basically be early adapters and get out there and get it done? And so we, we really believe that um, USDA has done a great job in designing programs and implementing and researching programs, but they need to have an implementation date that's much quicker and they need to have an implementation plan that deals with, as, as I've been a broken record here, workforce on the ground, technical assistance on the ground, right. making sure Sure, and then evaluate, get as many adapters out there, evaluate, and you can always walk back and say, that didn't work the way we thought it was going to work. Let's try something else. And so let's 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 not study something to death right, and, right. And to the point where we don't get the job done. Yeah, thank you so much. I really do appreciate the work you're doing. Um, Miss uh, Duncanson, uh, I want to ask you a question and um, just want to say I'm a Minnesotan by birth myself. Yeah, sure, you betcha. My family, uh, my mother was born on a farm in Kenya. My grandfather came from Norway, like so many Minnesotans, and my uncle farmed it for years. Also, I know you're not that far away from St. Peter. So my brother and sister went to Gustavus. So we got Southern Minnesota covered there. Um, but I want to ask you a question. Um, we're making a lot of progress on aligning good conservation practices and in crop insurance, but I think there's still a lot of work to do. The report included in your testimony noted that there's research on this currently underway through the 508H process, which allows third parties to propose new crop insurance products with the goal of eventually opening the door to new insurance rating methodologies that explicitly consider a farmer's conservation practices. So could you talk a little bit more about the effort and how what you hope will come out of the process? Yes, thank you very much. And I appreciate your pointing out um, the great state of Minnesota and your connections to it. Um, uh, yes, that process has been part of what we have worked towards and are hopeful about that we'll get out on the landscape and try to see what really is resilient and working and could be incentivized or recognized as, an, uh, as a way to um, uh, make crop insurance part, continue to be part of our resiliency plan. Keep in mind that for so many of us, crop insurance is the um, way to make sure we can farm another day. We also need to make sure that a crop insurance kind of platform is available to all farmers, regardless of what they grow and where they grow it and how they grow it. So we're looking forward to using some of the uh, pilot that we're finding out about right now. And also with the PACE, the PACE program, which is a split application of nitrogen opportunity, a brainchild of Illinois corn, and hmm. just see where we can go with that. Great. Um, well, thank you so much. I appreciate the work you've been doing 
and um, your representation of farmers. I think I only have 20 seconds left. So I will yield back my time and submit my other questions for the record, but thank you to all the panelists. Um, you've, uh, you've been very helpful and we really appreciate you all uh, presenting your side today. Thanks so much. And thank yield. you, Ms. Pingree. Uh, the gentleman from South Dakota, Mr. Johnson, recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I want to pick up our, or add on to the, uh, the conversations that uh, Ms. Custer had started on forest products and, and, and good forests. And I'll start with the Senator Heitkamp, and then maybe if we've got time left over, I might have some questions for Dr. Humiston. But uh, Senator, uh, you talked in your testimony a lot about uh, the, the power of uh, production agriculture to help with some of these things. Uh, but I noticed your organization uh, title also has forest uh, in, in its name. And so talk to us about uh, the role that uh, forests, and particularly forest products, can play in gathering up this carbon, sinking it, holding on to it for a long time. What, what better way to sink carbon than keep it in the wood? Right. I mean, we we recognize that force can be such a big part of this. Um, I want to just um, talk a little bit about what what concerned our committee and our bipartisan uh, effort. Number one, forest fires. And, and there was a lot of discussion about USDA uh, programs building greater resiliency so that we don't basically lose uh, the carbon sink in a forest fire. And so we want to modernize uh, seed collection and tree nurseries. We want to implement an all of government approach. I think that was one of the concerns and also working with state governments. Um, you heard New Hampshire, Maine is a huge um, forestry state, Georgia. Um, our state's not so much as you know, although you have the Black Hills. Um, you know, and, and I think the cross boundary initiatives to improve uh, a health and carbon sequestration potential of rangelands. And so there's, there's a whole ecosystem that we talked about. One of the things that we did, I think, pretty effectively was sit down and say, if we are going to, and, and we haven't talked a lot about it here today, but if we're going to sell carbon credits, how do we guarantee that those are real? And certainly the forestry industry today is on the leading edge of carbon credits and making sure that we are um, uh, doing the research and giving the certainty on uh, uh, carbon credits that can be bought on the market where we actually see a climate result. And, and people, I mean, we heard from very large uh, um, folks who would buy a lot of credits if they were sure that these credits would be in fact legitimate in terms of carbon capture. We think that the, the early adapters are gonna be in forestry. And so there's a lot of real opportunities out there to have those conversations. And the American forestry industry, whether it's people who um, uh, uh, provide uh, basically work on public lands or those who have their own private lands stand ready to do this. And that's the exciting part is everybody is in on it. Uh, well, and you're, you're right about so much of that, Senator, as, as well as the point that the Black Hills has so many trees. But don't sell North Dakota short. I have seen the trees in Medora and they are both beautiful. Um, so you talk about the health of the forest. <laughs> I think uh, you talk about the health of the forest. I think that's good. But talk to me specifically about forest products, because we're losing so much of that forest products industry in this country. And I think that can be 
the real value add because not only do you take the, the long life of these trees, but you extend the ability of that wood to hold carbon when you've got them in telephone poles, as you mentioned, and chairs and tables. I mean, I, I, what role does the forest products industry play? Uh, Why well, huge, and you've already heard it from uh, from the California perspective. The important part of as we were talking about biomass as an energy producer, but how about advanced manufacturing and making sure that those forest products are actually being utilized and used to produce furniture are used to produce building materials right here in this country. I think I would defer this question to our great colleague from California. Um, they're doing some amazing research there, and I think her testimony really spoke to this already, Congressman. Yeah, great. Let's do that, Senator. I've got uh, 45 seconds left, Doc. Uh, talk to me about uh, any research that's being done at the University of California on uh, innovation in the wood products uh, and forest products industry. So many of the engineering schools have departments of material science that are doing a great deal of work finding all kinds of new uses for biomass of all sorts. I have to say, basically, anything that is made from fossil fuel can be made from renewable biomass. And as we start moving towards that bioeconomy, we're going to create new profit centers for our farmers, our foresters, and even more importantly, perhaps, our rural communities, most of which have not really recovered from the 2008 Great Recession. And this is a huge opportunity we would be foolish to ignore and not pursue. Uh, I wish we could go deeper, but I'm out of time. Thank you very much, and I yield back, sir. Thank you. The gentleman from Arizona, Mr. O'Halloran, recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, ranking member, for organizing this important meeting. Uh, Arizona has been hit particularly hard by climate change. Uh, we are in the midst of uh, extremely uh, drought that, that has been worse since 1,200 years ago, uh, according to mo a lot of scientists. On top of this, uh, decades of outdated wildfire practices have led to a concentrated dense forest that have left much of northern Arizona. Uh, I have all or parts of the six national forest in Arizona, along with the Grand Canyon. So... Uh, I have watched as Arizona's wildfire season has started earlier and earlier each year. I'm happy to see an increased focus on fire pre prevention, but our current uh, mitigation efforts can only go so far. Uh, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act accounted for $6 billion for forestry programs, and I am encouraged by the Secretary Vilsack's uh, recent announcement in Arizona to use some of the funds to implement a 10-year strategy to confront the wildfire crisis. Uh, Dr. Humiston, uh, uh, thank you for your testimony. Fire and drought are major concerns of many Arizonans and Americans, particularly those in Northern and Eastern Arizona. More fire uh, severe and drought severe conditions are clearly linked to climate change. Can you speak to how the farm bill can support a collaborative, economically sustainable approach to addressing these concerns. Thank you for the question. Um, there's several ways the Farm Bill can assist with this. One is to just make sure that our U.S. Forest Service has 
the ability, an expanded ability, to enter into long-term master stewardship agreements with local government and economic development organizations to make use of that biomass. And that we keep pursuing the technologies to enable us to both get that biomass out of forests without causing environmental degradation. And we can do that. We're finding the tools. We're finding the methodologies. But then also look to entities like our rural development and their ability to finance some of that supply chain and infrastructure and manufacturing base that we need to make good use of that biomass. That's just a few examples, but there's many, many more. Uh, thank you. Uh, and uh, during the last farm bill, we did try to address the extension of contracts and also uh, some of the other uh, partnerships. Uh, we have to go further, I think, this time. Um, Senator, uh, could, could, could I add one more thing? I'm sorry. Sure, um, sure you can. I'm so sorry. I forgot to mention that one of the things we're doing that I think is going to be of critical importance moving forward is we're making use of our cooperative extension advisors in new and different ways to help facilitate that that. F that, that organizational need to build those supply chains and help stand up that manufacturing base and work with our local communities. All too often our small rural communities don't have the capacity or the people to try to make such big projects, such, such construction and development projects happen. And that's a role Cooperative Extension is perfect for. We're placing new advisors throughout California to do exactly that right now. And thank you, and I agree with that uh, thought process. Uh, Senator, the USDA's Natural Resource Conservation Service programs have a record of success in uh, advancing conservation, forestry, and re renewable uh, energy efforts to achieve positive climate and economic outcomes. However, as we work towards an effective farm bill, we must take a critical approach to these programs and adapt them to effectively address present-day issues. How can we improve USDA's NRCS programs? And do you believe that these are changes that would make the NRCS programs easier for historically underserved producers to use? Uh, and what about the Native American producers in particular? Thank you, Senator. Yeah. I, you know, I, I know I keep coming back to this, but it is about workforce. And I, when, when I was in the Senate, I was a, a ranking member on a committee that looked at the retiring workforce. We have got to build workforce. We've got to deploy workforce and we've got to deploy workforce where we haven't before. We have the technologies there. You know, I, we had a whole committee of soil scientists talking about do soils actually embed carbon? And yes, we can do all of this. But if we don't get people to adapt the practices that are being recommended through NRCS, and how we do that is we get workforce on the ground. And so I would say find a collaboration with tribal colleges. I know you have some great tribal colleges um, in, in uh, Arizona. They are reaching out to your land grant colleges. Make those collaborations, incentivize and outreach to traditional African-American schools and, and get the workforce on the ground. People will do it if they know how to do it. The gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Baird, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member uh, Thompson for having uh, this important hearing. And I really always appreciate having such, uh, such knowledgeable witnesses uh, on our program. Uh, 
but you know, I think we're all concerned about the Ukraine. Uh, we also have tremendous respect for their extraordinary courage uh, to defend their homeland. And having said that, uh, our heart goes out to what's taking place in that country. I think we're also concerned, as many of my colleagues have mentioned, about the, um, the impact that the current economic situation is having on our agricultural industry. And uh, we, need to, we need to recognize that as we move forward uh, with our farm bill. I have also appreciated hearing uh, many of the witnesses indicate today that, uh, that agriculture can play a major role uh, in this climate mitigation uh, kind of work. And I think that's exciting for agriculture. Cover crops, no-till, uh, forestry management, all of those are tools that the farmers and ranchers have been using and can use in the future. Another area of interest to me is uh, in the livestock area, uh, whereby uh, you can use feed ingredients to reduce uh, enteric emissions from cattle, for example, methane, the gas uh, release, and so on. So, um, so I think we need a pathway through the through the system to approve products like that, maybe through USDA rather than FDA, so that it's not a it's not a um, a uh, considered a um, antibiotic or something like that, but rather a feed ingredient. But having said all of that, um, I really see biotechnology as as a major factor in what happens in agriculture as we try to produce the food and fiber for our ever, uh, ever increasingly hungry world. So I'm just gonna throw out one, one example when I'm trying to talk about biotechnology. Uh, genetically engineered nitrogen fixing bacteria uh, can be used as a biofertilizer. And so, uh, and it really enhances plants ability to take up nutrients and so on. So my questions are gonna be uh, to Mr. Connor and to Ms. Duncanson. So Mr. Connor, would you care to elaborate on the importance of biotechnology and research and so on as we move forward in agriculture? Congressman, thank you for the question. And I will say, I think it's fundamental. Um, you know, we've focused a lot on this hearing on Title II provisions in the Farm Bill, which are the conservation provisions, and they are very, very important. But one of the things that the Food and Ag Climate Alliance will also be focusing on, as many of our recommendations are in the, in the research and development area, uh, we do believe that if we are going to meet uh, the challenges that we've got in front of us with the criteria that we have laid out in terms of helping producers, that uh, technology research are going to be uh, key to that. And uh, we do look forward to working with this committee in the research title as well of the Farm Bill of making sure that we are on the right path uh, to meet our objectives, which is at the end of the day, uh, do uh, do good by the American farmer and and uh, do good by the food security that we enjoy in this country. Thank you, Ms. Duckinson. Yeah, thank you very much for that question. And just to echo upon what Mr. Connor said earlier, we are very pro biotechnology, especially when we look at some of these opportunities with uh, new bi uh, microbiomes and and um, products on our landscape here at our farm, Highland Family Farms, we have run many pilots um, and many tests. Some of, those some of those products we've adapted, some of them are not within our, our budget, but they'll get better over time. Research is an important component on moving American agriculture forward and forestry. I mentioned in my testimony that uh, we are also converting some acres 
to organic production. There's research to be done in that realm too, as we look at the resiliency and the eliminating and reducing risk on all facets of what we do here. So we look forward to all the, all the uh, in new programs that are available to us, but we also are very dependent on our land grants um, to do some research on their facilities with, with scientists and move science forward to at the same time. I appreciate that comments and just, I would like to end by saying I've appreciated everything that everyone has brought up here today. It is overwhelming right now for American agriculture as we look at the challenges that face us. We are a resilient bunch. No matter what we do on the landscape, we will continue to look for good partners, good for, look for good um, advice, technical assistance, government programs, private uh, industry ideas to continue to move forward and we'll hope to adapt those into the new farm bill. We're an op optimistic group, aren't we? We always have been, so. That's so our, thank that's you for those plan. answers. Thank you very much, witnesses. I'm not sure, mm -hmm. Mr. Chairman, how much time I've got left, but if any of the other uh, witnesses would Your like to Your time comment, has expired, unfortunately. The gentleman from California, Mr. Gabahal, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to all the witnesses for taking time to testify before our committee today on these important issues. Like many areas of California, my district produces wonderful agriculture products, including the best bar none strawberries in the country, wine grapes, broccoli, and avocados, and much, much more. I'm proud of the contributions California's 24th district makes to our nation's food supply and the economy. Like many areas of California, my district also knows the consequences of climate change all too well, as we have experienced devastating fires and prolonged drought. California has long been the country's top agricultural state. Let me repeat that, top agricultural state and leading the fight against climate change. This is in part because of the research funded by the Farm Bill programs and by our terrific universities like Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and the University of California system, uh, who has an institution also in my district. Dr. Humiston, can you elaborate on some of the ways that UC Cooperative Extensions can help with wildfire prevention and research? I know you touched on uh, this a little bit, uh, but if you could uh, elaborate a little bit more, it would be great. And as we look towards drafting a farm bill in 2023, what are some of the USDA's programs Congress can improve to better assist with wildfire prevention and recovery? Thank you for the question. Um, Cooperative Extension is deeply engaged in several different activities around fire, wildfire risk reduction and also forest health. For example, we've coordinated local communities and homeowners associations to create controlled burn associations where we provide training and actually organize controlled burns that help remove that excess of fuel load and keep the forest healthy. We also have our Master Gardeners program increasingly working with homeowners on how to to make their house firewise, improving their landscaping plants to be less 
prone to fire, giving defensible space, hardening where necessary, and really reducing that risk, which is huge. And as you know, in California and many of the Western states and elsewhere, where winds can blow embers from a fire a half a mile to a mile ahead, you've really got to do that defensible home hardening to protect our homes. There's several other farm bill programs that are critical to helping us with this. I've mentioned earlier the bio-based products, so I won't do that again, but there's many programs there. And I will say one other item that hasn't been mentioned yet, not specific to fire, but drought, which you brought up, is the need to make sure we've got adequate water resources for irrigation for our farmers to grow those crops that you named. One thing that I personally would love to see would be some loosening of the language around rural development's ability to do piping from wastewater treatment facilities out to irrigation water sources. Um, that's such an obvious win-win between urban and rural and our farmers. And yet right now the language doesn't really allow that itself, as well as the population limits make it impossible to do that kind of infrastructure, even though it would serve our communities and our farmers very much. Thank you. Dr. Humiston, in your testimony, you mentioned that drought and heat tolerant crops varieties are being developed. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the impact this could have on water conservation efforts in California and the role Farm Bill programs played in this research? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mentioned the need to develop new crop varieties, and this is critical. Uh, we're seeing our ecosystems actually move around, uh, obviously a little bit to the north as as different sectors of the state warm up. And again, this isn't just California. But finding those crop varieties that maybe have a shorter growing season, uh, are able to grow on less water, and the ability to perhaps use saltier soils are all critical to be able to keep productivity up. The other item that's really exciting is the ability to really use data to help us with managing this type of productivity. We've created a software system called CropManage, some of our cooperative extension folks over on the coast, that actually allows farmers who utilize it to reduce their need for water and nitrogen fertilizer as much as 40% and still maintain the same levels of productivity on many specialty crops. We're working to expand that to additional crops uh, as we speak. Thank you. Ms. Raygoza, I don't know if I, have, if I have enough time, but I agree with you that young farmers are the future. I want to help support these young aspiring farmers succeed and produce food for our country. Do you think some type of workforce development partnership between USDA and community colleges would be useful to teach young farmers how to navigate USDA resources and learn about climate practices? The gentleman's okay. time has expired, but you may respond in writing to him. Thank you. The gentleman from Ohio, Mr. Balderson, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, for the time. Thank you for the panel for being here. Uh, Senator, it, it's nice to actually get to ask you a question. I, I enjoy your time on Squawk Box, uh, so it, it, it's, all, it's actually good to see you here, so thank you. Uh, Ohio runs a soil and water management program called H2 Ohio that is showing some promise in lessening runoff from farm fields into rivers and streams and provides farmers with financial incentives. It is Interesting to me that farmers are being paid different prices for these programs. For example, if a farmer has a nutrient management plan, they receive $2 per acre. 
If a farmer uses variable rate fertilization, they receive $8 per acre. Combining practices can pay farmers up to $30 per acre. I am curious if any of our panelists today know about what type of price discovery is occurring in these new carbon markets and how these prices paid to farmers are determined. Follow up with that. Perhaps we can start with you, Dr. Outlaw, which is a great name, since you have a background in agriculture economics. Right. Uh, at this point, there isn't very much uh, transparency in how those prices have uh, been determined. I wouldn't consider there to be a working market right now for, for carbon. Uh, may, maybe uh, you don't really have a market when you don't know how the prices are being determined, just plain and simple. Um, I will just say, um, Congressman, I think, I think we are all in total agreement on that, uh, including our own Secretary of Agriculture, and, and that's part of the reason you know, the programs that he has uh, put forward uh, and, and recently announced is, is really, um, you know, sort of a discovery, if you will, type of program designed, I think, to create the data and the information that are going to be necessary to overcome some of these carbon issues, including transparency that we've talked about. And, and we do commend the, the secretary for recognizing that this is not just, uh, you know, full speed ahead, that we do need uh, to collect a lot of information here in the process before jumping into this thing with both feet. And, and in, in our view, he has done that with his announcement uh, last week. Okay, thank you. What anybody else like to add? Okay. I just would like to add, if I could, please, that sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. Mm -hmm. So if we have some programs out there that will figure out some ways to pay producers on any size or scale for doing a practice, and get them into the groove of doing that, that's helpful. But we have to have good data to make sure what we're doing is being impactful. So the data here again, data collection and analysis becomes really important to how we move forward. Yeah, if, if, I, if I could add to that too, uh, it, all the comments thus far are right on. I would say that we're doing a lot of work, not only around the idea of carbon markets, but ecosystem services, which I mentioned in my testimony. You know, our farmers and foresters and, and natural resource managers produce a lot of ecosystem services that the general public enjoys and doesn't pay a dime for. And if we can start finding the framework to start compensating for some of those ecosystem services, many of which are climate smart practices, that too will help us move all of these issues forward in a more positive direction. Okay, thank you. Uh, my next question, uh, while the Biden administration and Beltway think, think tanks continue to push a climate agenda based around new and untested programs, I'm interested in working on climate solutions that will work for our farmers. When I hear from farmers about climate solutions, they talk about the need for more research, more boots on the ground support, access to precision agricultural technology, and the need for broadband connectivity to support this technology. To me, this all sounds like assistance that is available within current Farm Bill programs. Is the solution as simple as doubling down on these proven programs? And anyone can, from the panel can answer. I would just respond to that by saying uh, I think part of the solution certainly is, um, you know, the existing framework uh, that we have in place. That framework has corrected a lot of uh, environmental problems for American agriculture through the years, whether it's, uh, you know, erosion, water quality, wetlands, those kinds of things. And so we're building off of that, uh, you know, to, to move forward with what we are calling climate smart agriculture. It's not 100% of the solution, but it's a big part of it. 
and, and we believe that uh, the mechanisms are, are in place to, to really go down that pathway uh, aggressively. Okay. Yeah, I would add we need to not reinvent the wheel. We've got some great programs, many of we, which need increased funding because the needs have grown. But I'd also say that we need to really pursue interagency collaborations and making sure we're leveraging those programs amongst the different agencies far more than we currently do. Thank you all very much. My time has expired, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. The gentlewoman from Iowa, Ms. Axney, is now recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Chairman Scott, and thank you to all the witnesses for being here. Very much appreciate it. Hello, Senator Heitkamp. Very nice to see you again, and all the other folks that are here. This is a great topic, one of uh, extreme interest to me. Um, as this committee continues its work on reviewing the 2018 Farm Bill in preparation for next year, it's clear to me that we need strong investment in conservation and renewable energy in order to meet the ever-increasing challenge of climate change. We know that our family farmers are on the front lines of climate change and have seen firsthand the devastating impact of volatile and devastating weather. Boy, I know that in Iowa. Just had another tornado, unfortunately, go through our state. Uh, but our family farmers are also a key part of the solution, and they've been champions of conservation and stewards of their land for generations. And as we learn more about climate change, it's critical that we equip our farmers with all the tools and resources and voluntary incentives that we can do to make sure that they meet those challenges. Um, the success of the biofuels industry is a, a great example of this. And from 2008 to 2020, the renewable fuel standard resulted in the reduction of nearly 1 billion metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions from our transportation sector through the use of biofuels blends. In fact, biofuel production is on track to hit net zero carbon emissions in the coming decades, all while being significantly cheaper at the pump than fossil fuels. So over this last year, I've been focused on expanding access to higher blends of ethanol as a way to reduce our emissions and to provide a more affordable option for our consumers. The legislation I have would build upon USDA's successful Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program and ensure more fuel retailers can provide E15 at higher blends of ethanol, giving consumers access to, of course, more affordable, cleaner, and domestic source of fuel. And so while my legislation passed the House last year, I was disappointed to see it stall in the Senate. So to you, Senator Heitkamp, I know you were heavily involved in biofuels policy when you served your great state of North Dakota. What role do you see biofuels playing in combating the climate crisis? And what suggestions do you have for Congress and for the Senate uh, and the administration as a whole when looking at biofuels policy? I think you're still muted. My, my first suggestion is follow the law. And a previous speaker talked about this administration. We've had, we had this problem in the Obama administration with, with blend walls. We had a pro this problem in the past administration with, uh, with waivers, and now we're still experiencing this problem. We've got to give the industry certainty. But in, in, in addition to the work that you're doing, I'm proud of the role that I played in passing 45Q, which is a tax credit, which the ethanol industry is going to use not only to um, uh, uh, continue their great work in terms of climate, but to also sequester their 
their CO2 from their process. And so we know that this is an industry that will adapt when given the certainty of market. And so the single most important thing you can do, follow the law, give them certainty to market, set some goals that I know they can achieve, whether it is by, by uh, doing the practices they're doing right now or carbon capture. And so I'm really excited about the future of this industry. But, but uh, Thank you. Um, I, I, th I, you cut out a bit here, but I think you've completed your uh, answer. Thank you, Senator Heitkamp. I appreciate that. I want to turn to cover crops real quickly here. Last summer, the USDA announced the availability of the pandemic cover crop program, obviously to help our producers offset the cost associated with cover crops and providing a discount on their crop insurance premiums. Uh, Ms. Duncanson, thanks again for joining us here today and sharing your expertise. Uh, can you tell me what level of interest you've seen from producers regarding cover cropping or specifically the pandemic cover crop program and what suggestions you have to improve it or other ways to incentivize more cover crops? Thank you for that question. Yes, I appreciate being answered it, asked it. Um, there aren't as many people involved in cover crops as I wish, but that is coming along. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes you have to go slow to go fast, which means giving those incentives um, and making it easy to apply. Just yesterday, our family finished um, applying for the, the uh, through FSA for the cover crop program, and we'll utilize that as we pay for seed to expand cover crops um, uh, through our, our operation. And when I inquired at our FSA office, they said that about 30% uh, of the folks that um, serve our service had applied for cover crops. And I see them as I travel the country, I see different um, cover crops becoming um, more used more rapidly around the country. But here again, we're talking about technical assistance uh, to let information and good data. The general's lady's time has expired, unfortunately. The gentleman from Kansas, Mr. Mann, is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all for being here this morning and participating in today's hearing. Farm Bill Conservation Programs, uh, as we all know, have generally gener generated wide bipartisan support in Congress and wide, adopting, uh, wide adoption amongst farmers and ranchers. The extensive participation in conservation program, um, I believe, comes from the flexibility for individualized operations, incentives for locally led and voluntary efforts, and coordination with state technical committees. Um, in regards to climate specifically, I, I think it's important, and my priorities would be to make sure that whatever we do is producer-focused, uh, voluntary, not at the expense of other programs, and also make sure that we don't um, penalize our early adopters and, and things that are already happening. Um, to that effect, I guess my first question would be um, to you, uh, Mr. Connor. You know, for decades, producers across uh, the Big First District, my district in Kansas and the country, have taken advantage of incentive-based programs by voluntarily making changes on their farms and ranches to be efficient um, stewards of their resources. Uh, recently, and I'm starting to hear a lot from producers that have been implementing no-till practices for decades, um, but they would not qualify to participate in carbon market programs because their practice is not considered new. Uh, 
Uh, in some cases, these producers were told that they would need to farm conventionally for two growing seasons just to qualify for, for carbon market programs. Can you expand on the importance of voluntary um, conservation efforts and discuss why it's important for Congress um, you know, to make sure that we don't um, hinder or penalize our early adopters? It's a great question, Congressman, and let me just say that our, our, the importance of these programs is, is really uh, top line, and, and not only because they have been effective in the past, and as I noted earlier, they, these programs have solved many of the challenges that we have faced in American agriculture before and done so in a way that, again, has been income enhancing, and that's, that's the bottom line in terms of our recommendations, and we believe that that, that can be done here. For the early adopters, um, this is something that the, the Food and Ag Climate Alliance struggled with. I will just tell you that we ended up with a, a recommendation that simply uh, suggested that there be a one-time payment in addition to what other subsequent payments may be coming down the pike, a one-time payment to those early adopters to compensate them for you know, the work that they have done on their farms and certainly not to penalize and I would even add a worst-case scenario where they might tear up conservation practices only to be able to collect, you know, for the new ones. And, and, and obviously that, that's just borderline stupidity to have that kind of policy in place. So um, we struggled with it. We came up with a recommendation, but it's certainly an area in the Farm Bill where we want to work with this committee to develop what is the appropriate uh, compensation for those uh, early adopters because they need it and, and should get it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I appreciate how producer-focused um, your, your organization and group is um, on these issues. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, one last question would be for uh, Dr. Outlaw. Uh, one of my top priorities in my role you know, on this committee is protecting crop insurance. It's absolutely vital um, to uh, our ag producers all over my district, all over the country. Um, we want to make sure that we protect crop insurance so the producers can sustain their operations year after year, even in the face, in the face of uncertain weather. My question is, what do you consider the role of crop insurance to be when dealing with uncertain or extreme weather events, and how should crop insurance enter into the overall conversation we're having about climate practices? Well, I think it's very involved. Uh, the uh, weather patterns, local weather patterns, has helped define a farmer's APH, which helps define their coverage. And so uh, crop insurance and conservation programs go hand in hand. The, 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 the issue I have and what I testified to was that uh, trying to link those together, in my opinion, is not a good idea, uh, primarily because you can, you can always create winners and losers with, with programs. And if, if as, as an example, if your producers in your state are not able to take advantage of some of these programs, then they wouldn't get the premium discounts that some of the folks are, are suggesting would be out there. So I, I suggested in my testimony that people need to pay really close attention to trying to link these programs together. There are many programs and many outlets through USDA to get money to producers to do uh, climate-friendly practices, climate-smart practices. Uh, it doesn't have to be tied to crop insurance. Great. Well, thank you all. My time's expiring. With that, I yield back. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. The gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Rush, is now recognized for five minutes. I certainly want to thank you, Mr. Chairman, and this has been quite uh, a hearing, and I really want to thank uh, the witnesses for appearing before us uh, today. Uh, I don't see Senator uh, Heikamp 
on is I, I think I'm here. I just you have lost my video, but I can hear okay. you and I can answer. Well, thank you so much, Senator. Senator, uh, I have a question for you. In your testimony, you discuss uh, ensuring land access, especially for uh, new and small and historically underserved landowners uh, uh, and producers. And this is an issue that I've worked out, uh, worked on for quite a while, quite a while now. And uh, I, it's an issue that really connects with me personally. My grandfather owned, uh, property, uh, owned a farm in uh, Northern County, uh, Georgia, Southwest Georgia. Uh, and it was my family farm and my father uh, to his dying day always wanted to try to uh, figure out how, what happened to the farm and how they, we could be claim the farm and so um, and that's the plight that's shared with a number of uh, uh, African-American descendants uh, of farmers uh, throughout our land so can you expound if you will on what new federal incentives uh, could address and the major financial, legal, and social obstacles that current, current limit access to affordable farmland specifically. And in general, is there any uh, ideas or suggestions you may have for uh, that could give some relief, some advice, some help to uh, individuals who may want to question uh, the, uh, uh, the loss of their uh, family farmland uh, and some of the issues, some of the impediments that uh, air rights have caused for uh, uh, African-American farmers and specifically and other farmers in general. And the next part of my question is how can urban farming play a role in increasing access to land and for enacting good climate policy. So that's a lot, Senator. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to suggest to all of you that one of the looming crises in America is land ownership and absentee land ownership. Even in a state like North Dakota, you know, over, I think only 25% of the land that large farmers farm is actually owned by the farmer themselves. And so we have a situation where um, uh, we have a, a land ownership by people who, who are not actually producing, who are not, I mean, they're, they're, they're making money obviously from rents. Um, and so once that land becomes available, it's incredibly difficult for small family farmers or for people who want to reestablish or expand their farm to actually be able to afford it. If we want to keep a culture of family farming in this country, we've got to look at land ownership. And if we want to, if we want to rectify past wrongs that have been done, we have to look at that chain of title. We have to look at kind of this from the standpoint of people who, who quite honestly lost their land 
inappropriately, who had it taken from them, or who now have it tied up in land trusts, and they're unable to access the asset. And so um, this land ownership goes beyond what you've, Congressman Rush, what you've identified, but it is absolutely one of those, you know, look up what's coming at us in the future. We've got to fix past wrongs, but we also have to look at the challenges that land ownership will present to making sure that we're producing enough food to feed our country and feed the world, because it will restrict us in terms of access to that asset for agricultural production. You're absolutely right, Senator. Uh, thank you, Congressman Rush. The gentleman from Iowa, Mr. Fenstra, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson. Uh, I am a proud of our farmers and producers in my district who are leading the way in farming practices that result in productive harvest and clean environment. For years, agriculture industry has implemented practices that reduce emissions, enrich the soil, and protect our natural resources. These practices have improved our quality of life by allowing farmers to produce more food, fiber, and fuel for all of us. Iowa's fourth district leads the nation in ethanol and biofuels production. In addition to great economic benefits, USDA reports that the greenhouse gas emissions associated with corn ethanol are 43% lower than gasoline. Similarly, biodiesel and renewable diesel are 74% less carbon intensive than petroleum fuels. Programs under Title IX of the 2018 Farm Bill have bolstered renewable energy production in the United States. For example, the biofuels uh, education program has stimulated both consumption and investment in biodiesel through education efforts. Funding offered through these programs have, have been leveraged to promote biodiesel sustainability benefits, provide technical assistance to equipment manufacturers, and develop fuel quality assurance programs. <coughs> Another program of Title IX, the Advanced Biofuel Payment Program, was provided mandatory funding through the 2018 Farm Bill. The program provides assistance to small fuel producers looking to create long-term increases in biofuel production. Senator Heitkamp, how has the Title IX of the Farm Bill advanced cleaner burning domestic energy production that benefits farmers and, in, and the environment? Yeah, I would like to just repeat back to you, Congress, what you just said. Um, when you look at the actual um, reductions, you look at the opportunity, and, and I want to once, I don't know if you guys could hear me when I was responding, but when we look at what the Iowa um, ethanol industry is doing and what South Dakota is doing and North Dakota is doing, and they're looking at carbon capture to actually even expand on those numbers. Carbon capture behind the process, which can even re reduce their greenhouse impact even greater. And so I think that when at the record and, and it, um, give us access to the market by limiting the infrastructure or people who just don't like corn ethanol. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, Senator, we're having a little more difficulty, but you can respond to that in yeah, writing. And, and I'll, I'll just I'll talk back. I just want to appreciate what Senator Heitkamp is saying. And it's just amazing to, to hear the positive, positive reinforcement that's being talked about in, in this committee hearing when it comes to biofuels, ethanol, biodiesel, and, and so forth. You know, and yet what's shocking to me is that never once have we heard it from the administration. And this is so concerning right now when, when we're at such a precipice uh, with our country that we're desperately trying to find uh, energy and, and fuel. And yet not one word crickets. And I just, I'm so disappointed in that. Just really disappointed. The 2018 Farm Bill authorized a soil health and income protection pilot program called SHIP, a voluntary program that allows short-term contract contracts with producers to target marginal acres within the field. This is a really uh, great program. Uh, Dr. Humpsonton, how has this program empowered producers to adopt conservation practices and do you agree with locally led programs like SHIP to target these certain areas? Thank you for the question. Yes, I absolutely agree with locally led programs. I, I served as a uh, director on a soil and water conservation district myself in California for many years. And it's that locally led program that lets us make sure that practices uh, are specific to the, the soil, the climate, the ecosystems that our farmers are operating in. Uh, as to the short-term program you mentioned, it's a critical opportunity to allow farmers to implement practices that they might not otherwise be able to afford. As we all know, agriculture is challenging to pencil out under the best of circumstances, let alone some of the circumstances we have now. So that type of program is exactly what we need, particularly for some of our small and uh, beginning farmers, too. Absolutely. Thanks for your comments, and I yield back. The gentlewoman from Illinois, Ms. Bustos, who is also chair of the Subcommittee on General Farm Commodities and Risk Management, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Chairman. And, and, and really, I want to say thank you for holding this hearing. Um, it's uh, really important that we hear from all the, the witnesses are, who are with us. Uh, and I know we've heard a lot today. I had another hearing going on. Um, my staff briefed me on, on the highlights of this, but uh, I know we've heard a lot about the importance of, of crop insurance. And uh, the USDA has, has rolled out some new products in recent years that have addressed uh, uh, these challenges that we have. Uh, I want to start out by uh, asking uh, Ms. Duncanson a question. Would you please talk about what other new crop insurance products or risk management tools might be necessary in order to help our producers mitigate the impacts of the climate change that we're all experiencing. Thank you very much for that question and I appreciate that. Let's keep in mind that we've said time and time again here today about the vital importance of crop insurance and with every new project or every new product that comes out of that system, it needs to be actuarially sound. And so anything that we introduce, we always wanna make sure that test is done. Um, all these products about, are about resiliency and re eliminating risks. So as we look at good farming practices that are established through USDA and new things that are happening out on the landscape, we look forward to using the sound advice of this committee, of USDA, of others in private industry, as well as the system uh, about how we um, introduce a pro program. As you may know, the PACE product, which is about split application 
of nitrogen rates is in its pilot stage throughout your state and the University of Illinois is, is um, uh, managing that part of that data collection and analysis for us. And that really looks at the opportunity for farmers to split apply nitrogen when it's needed, but it gives the opportunity for a, a insurance program should you not be able to get the product on and in a timely fashion. So we look forward to seeing about the uh, adoption of the PACE and are pleased that we were able to um, provide research for its uh, creation. Thank you, Ms. Duncanson. All right, um, I'm gonna try to ask uh, Senator Heidkamp a question and uh, we'll, we'll see if this will work. But uh, in uh, the, the most recent report, your Farm and, and Forest Climate Solutions Task Force noted the importance of expanding programs that deliver climate benefits and offer pathways to new market opportunities for farmers, ranchers, and uh, forest landowners. So just last month, the USDA announced the Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities, which I mean, probably everybody in this room knows this, but a, a $1 billion program for pilot projects that create new opportunities for climate smart commodities across the value chain. Uh, so, Senator, um, if, if hopefully you can hear me and hopefully we can hear your answer, but can you expand on what sorts of projects that, that you envision through these partnerships and, and how you see them impacting rural America? Well, I, I, I'm very excited about them, Congresswoman. I think that when you look at it, it's going to be a, a community collaboration. So let's look at a corn farmer in North Dakota that is growing cover crops that's saying, I am sequestering CO2. Um, I, I am doing everything right, but I need to have verification. And so they can work with the land grant colleges. They'll be able to work with local entrepreneurs, tech companies to try and do that verification. Because we know with that verification, the new carbon markets won't work because people aren't going to buy carbon credits that aren't real. And so I really applaud the secretary. I think to think that you sit in Washington, you can design a program here is absolutely wrong headed to throw out an opportunity and let us in rural America develop the programs. That's where we're gonna find the solutions. And I, I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great use of resources. And I think you're gonna see great results. Here, here. Uh, a great answer. Thank you, Senator. It's great to see you. Um, I will pass on my next question because I know I can't get it answered within the next 40 seconds. So with that, I will yield back. And again, Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for holding this hearing. Thank you to our witnesses. And thank you. The gentleman from Alabama, Mr. Moore, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this is a question to all the panelists. And so anyone can feel free to answer this. The EPA estimates that the agricultural's global greenhouse gas contribution was 24% for all emissions, over double that of the agriculture share in U.S. emissions, which is less than 10%. Why do y'all think this is? And also, what do you think other nations should be doing to follow the leadership of the U.S. agricultural industry? Thank you. Congressman, there's no question in our mind that uh, American agriculture is, uh, you know, at the very, very top of its game in food production internationally. And, and you know, we are the, the cleanest, the most advanced, uh, least footprint, and we, we take great pride in that. And I know this committee uh, takes great pride uh, in that designation. And, and that's so important to us as we talk about food as a national security issue going forward. 
um, you know, we, we are going to need to produce a lot of food in this country, and, it, you know, it has to be produced, obviously, in the most uh, sustainable, cleanest way possible, and, and we understand that, and that's why these recommendations that uh, everyone is talking about at, at great length are so important, because they are programs designed to come along beside farmers and landowners across the country to really encourage them to be able to produce. This is all about producing food. It's not about holding people back. It's, a, it's about really um, adding to a growth industry and doing so in a way that's responsible. And when we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're proud of um, who we represent in this industry. And again, I know this committee is as well. I would add to that that it is critically important that we ensure our data, our analysis of that data, and the results we get from it is accurate, that it's based on science and real numbers. You, you know, a lot of the numbers we see on greenhouse emissions from agriculture are based on very different formulas of how to even calculate that. That's one of the huge issues out there. Some of them are based on data that was released by the United Nations Food and Ag Organization a decade or so ago that they themselves since debunked. And yet academics and scientists and advocates still utilize that false data. Uh, I don't pretend to have the actual answer because, frankly, academics are still working on figuring that out. But I do know that if we're going to make smart investments in good solutions and keep our agriculture going, we've got to understand that, yes, agriculture produces some greenhouse gases. It does. But it also sequesters and can be a solution to that. And we've got to look at both sides of that equation. It's not just one. Frankly, if we to do that type of calculation for every industry sector in every aspect of our lives. None of them are going to come out well. So we've just got to really think about the data, that it's analyzed properly, the science is good, and then use that to make the kind of investments that will get us the most bang for the buck. That's some very good points, and, and thank you. Any idea on how we can bring other nations along? I mean, I, you know, I'm always concerned about us penalizing our producers and then letting the rest of the world run wild. Or do you have suggestions to how to bring other people along to join us in this, this effort? Well, again, Congressman, I don't think we're talking about penalizing here. Um, mm -hmm. The Food and Ag Climate Alliance's fundamental pr principles uh, talk about enhancing farm income, enhancing opportunities in rural America. And I think this is what we can do for the world. We can, we can be the trailblazer here in terms of putting forth uh, policies that uh, help farmers and, and help them to do it the best that they possibly can. I don't know of any nation that wants to, you know, to stomp on uh, the people that are producing the food and feeding them. Uh, that just, you know, runs pretty counter to any, any, anything good and right uh, in, in this world. And so uh, to the extent that we can model this, I, I believe uh, others will follow. And I would add to that that it's critically important our scientists from every country on the planet be able to interact with each other. And yes, I will say, we need to provide appropriate cybersecurity and secure information as needed, but nevertheless, we find solutions here that may work for another country. Another country may find a solution that is wonderful for us here. And the less we try to reinvent the wheel or duplicate something already done, the more resources we have to move towards implementing solutions. Thank you for the, for the answers. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm going to yield back. Uh, thank you.
<laughs> Thank you. The gentlewoman from Washington, Ms. Schreier, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and welcome to all of our witnesses. I would just like to touch on a few uh, issues today. Uh, first one is that I'd like to discuss the measuring, monitoring, and, uh, and verification of success of sustainable farming practices and forestry practices. And I know that measuring climate benefits accurately and cost-effectively as a result of changing land management practices still remains a challenge. Um, our ability to measure soil carbon sequestration precisely, for example, is crucial to set realistic policy goals and design effective incentives. Uh, but it can also prevent us from, it, it, can, it can present us with this situation if we can't measure it well, of finding ourselves in this situation where suddenly everything is referred to as climate friendly or clean, when we don't have a way to measure and suddenly the designation of clean and climate friendly just become meaningless. And so this first question is for Deputy Secretary Connor and Senator Heitkamp for both of you. And my first question is, you know, kind of part A and part B. A is how would you work with definitions and measurements to ensure meaningfulness as we give these designations? And B, uh, which USDA programs do you suggest Congress expand upon to advance measurement tools and technologies of climate benefits for agriculture? Uh, Senator Heitkamp, we'll start with you. Thanks so much. I think um, it's been pretty clear that I think that we don't yet have good measurement tools. And that's why it's important that we, number one, continue the research, continue the education, because the last thing that we should be doing in agriculture is making a claim about a climate that's not valid. It will set us back in terms of our goal, which is really to commoditize that carbon credit and make it an income stream for the people who own the land who are producing on the land. And so um, uh, I think there's been a number of carbon markets. They've had their difficulties for exactly this reason. And I think we, we are going to have to present solid science. Now, with that said, we can't delay this process too long, making perfect the enemy of good. We're going to learn as we adapt. And so to me, I, I think that Secretary Vilsack is trying to build out the expertise. But in the at the end of the day, we need authorization from Congress to um, to undergo this work. I think that the bill that is crossing over from the Senate was one that I would have been proud to advance to all of you. I hope you consider it and advance it because it will get the resources that uh, Secretary Vilsack needs to do this work. Thank you. Deputy Secretary Connor, do you have about a 30 second answer before I go to sure. another part? Um, I'll, I'll be very brief. I, I will just say that it's, it's, it's our view that the uh, uh, Secretary Vilsack's uh, partnership for climate smart commodities that was announced really is a massive um, pilot project designed to gather the kind of information that you were seeking. And I think we, we're in 100 percent agreement in, in a panel on that. Uh, it, it, it is a big pilot project from all regions. Um, we look forward to the results of that and analyzing that information, and I think it will be uh, informative in terms of a long-term 
climate uh, policy then for this country. Uh, in terms of which USDA programs, I will, I will tell you, I think th this is a collaborative effort across many agencies. Uh, we, we acknowledge a role for ARS in terms of a data analysis here, Agricultural Research Service, uh, but certainly the technical service providers uh, that, uh, you know, will be coming online here through uh, NRCS are going to be the people with the boots out on the ground that uh, uh, producers will be interacting with. They'll be walking the fields, you know, analyzing what works and what doesn't and reporting that back, and they're, they're going to be a critical part of that. We've got to make sure we've got the, the people on the ground. I have one more part that I just want to touch on really quickly because we don't always have measurements, but I want to highlight a program we have here in Washington State called the Sustainable Farms and Fields Program. Um, it is a bipartisan voluntary program that supports farmers who are implementing practices that we already know work. And it leaves out some types of farmers, but it is a way to do this without the measurements. And it gives farmers different options for participation, like they can use funds for um, very site-specific consultations. They could purchase a seed drill with it or seeds for cover cropping um, or even uh, uh, payments for contracted uh, carbon storage. And so I just want to highlight there are programs even in advance of having those perfect measurements that can advance these climate goals in addition to the ones that you just mentioned. Thank you. And I yield back. The gentlelady from Florida, Ms. Carmack, is recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. Uh, can you all hear me okay? Yes, we can. Excellent. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, I have to be honest. I am incredibly frustrated. Uh, you know, it has uh, been uh, about 14, 15 months now uh, since the beginning of the 117th Congress. And today we have had six, six hearings about climate change and one about production agriculture, one. I, I um, like I said, I, I'm very frustrated. I represent an area that is home to producers and as the lone Republican for the state of Florida on the House Agriculture Committee, this issue is incredibly vital to my state. We are a top 10 producer of agriculture products in the country and, <laughs> To say that this hearing is redundant is um, putting it nicely. It really does betray the, the really serious dire needs of our producers that they're facing right now with fuel, input costs through the roof, uh, labor concerns, taxes, regulations, red tape. You can't even begin to understand the, the frustration of our producers um, because we haven't, we haven't brought them before the committee. We haven't had these conversations. And if you ask any of my producers in Florida, whether the pressing concern for them is covering irrigation canals with solar panels or figuring out how they're going to afford fertilizer in the coming months, I think it's pretty obvious what they're going to choose as the issue of concern for them. And the fact that this hearing isn't even a review of the farm bill program, as the majority would have us believe, it's instead a wish list of climate change priorities, that it's a wish list of things that lack practicality. And so I'm really, really frustrated. And I echo the frustrations of producers, not just in Florida, but across this country that are that feel that they're screaming at the top of their lungs and it's falling on deaf ears in Washington and in the halls of Congress. Again, the cost of fuel, has that been addressed? No, there is no feasible plan from this administration or this committee to address that. The best that has come out was 
We're going to work to make electric vehicles and charging stations happen in rural America. Folks, we don't even have broadband. That is a pie in the sky idea. While well-intentioned, it misses the mark by a mile. And I just can't even begin to tell you about the labor concerns. Just even two weeks ago, having to work to process applications for H-2A workers because we had blueberries. It's blueberry season in my district. And they have no help in order to pick the blueberries. This is a continual issue that we are seeing. The cost of fertilizer, Mr. Chairman, alarm bells have been ringing. We now have Russia invading Ukraine, and many people know that Russia and Belarus are the major supplier of potash. And when I speak with our producers, they're facing issues of regulatory hurdles here in the country. And then you look to our Canadian friends who, when you look at the Canadian Pacific Rail Line, they're looking at a strike. What are our producers supposed to do in the face of input costs that make doing business unreasonable? I, I, I feel like I feel extraordinarily frustrated for our producers because this committee has had opportunity after opportunity to talk about these issues that are on the minds and being discussed at kitchen tables around this country. And instead, it's being neglected for a political agenda. You talk about the important role of forestry and timber and how that plays into carbon, uh, carbon capture. But what happens when the privately owned and workforce in my district in Florida are sold because the cost of labor and fuel and inputs are so high, it's unsustainable. One forester in my district let me know just last week, he's seen $10,000 in increased fuel costs, just in fuel costs. He told me that if prices stay this high, which of course is this administration has indicated that it will, and they will continue to stay this high. He's going to sell his land. Do you really want the next crop to be a, sound, a foundation slab? Because it won't be production agriculture. And I think there needs to be a come to Jesus discussion in this committee about the future of agriculture. And I'm not talking about climate change. I'm talking about production agriculture. And if any person on this call has eaten today, you should be concerned about production agriculture in our country, which is a national security concern. I, I, I cannot believe that we are picking and choosing the issues that are of national security concern for every American, regardless of where you live in the country and what box you check. Mr. Chairman, I, I, I apologize. I respect you. The gentlelady's time has expired. The gentleman from California, Mr. Panetta, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate this uh, hearing and thanks for all of the witnesses uh, and your testimony and, of course, all of your work to highlight what I do believe is an important issue. Also, of course, I want to thank Dr. Humiston for everything that she's done for my district on the Central Coast of California and for the state of California, the number one agricultural producing state. Uh, look, I think we can all sympathize uh, and empathize with the concerns and frustrations uh, that my colleague from Florida just expressed. However, I would disagree with her in the sense that this isn't about politics. This really is about policy. Policies that we're talking about to deal with a very pressing issue amongst many that our people in agriculture have to deal with. We get that. But this is a time that we can talk about what type of policies we can put in place going forward into the 2023 Farm Bill dealing with climate change and how it affects our agricultural producers, not just in Florida, not just in California, but throughout the entire country. Now, look, in my district on the central coast of California, uh, as I always say, we have a lot of bounty and we have a lot of beauty. 
And with our bounty, we have a number of specialty crops. You name it, we grow it. I cannot stress that enough, especially in the Salinas, the Pajaro, and the San Juan Valleys. When it comes to our beauty, we got a national park, we got a national monument, we got a national forest, we got a national marine sanctuary for Pete's sake. But that leads to my third B. What, uh, what that B is, is having a balance. What is the type of balance that we need to have to be concerned with our environment, but continue to produce the fresh fruits and vegetables that my agricultural producers do? It takes a lot of work together. It takes a lot of work coming to the table and making sure our producers are at the table to talk about the protections for agriculture, for our ag workers, and yes, even for our environment. Because trust me, what I like to remind people, if anybody, if anybody wants fresh air, clean water, and healthy soil, it's those that work in agriculture. Now, Dr. Humanston, uh, I was lucky to have time with you yesterday in my office to have a good conversation. I want to focus on something in regards to that you mentioned in your introduction about rural designation. Uh, basically uh, talking about how that has severely impeded the ability of our communities and our farmers and ranchers to benefit from many federal programs, even in those even those programs aimed at strengthening our rural communities. Briefly, can you discuss further the need to revisit the definition of quote unquote rural and elaborate a little bit on how the current definition limits climate smart investments in rural economies that unfortunately don't meet the unrealistic criteria that can be imposed on them to meet the designation of rural. Thank you, Congressman. I appreciate the question. And if you'll indulge me for 30 seconds before I answer that, I just want to say that I, too, uh, understand the frustration of many people have, have expressed today. My father currently manages our family's cattle ranch in southwest Colorado, a family farm that could only support he and my mother as an economic institution. Because of that, I chose to go on a path of policy and planning related to the farm bill, farm practices, uh, everything I do now and have for 30 years to make sure my father can keep farming and people like him can keep farming. And one issue that hasn't come up today that I think is critical is that we are talking about a farm bill that is not just for today and the next five years. My father, my siblings, and I are trying to make sure that my grandson and my great nieces and nephews are able to keep on farming. And we have not discussed that today. And a lot of these climate smart agricultural programs are what are going to enable those farms to be functioning in 10 and 20 years, particularly in states where we're already seeing devastating effects from extreme weather. To your question, um, I've already mentioned several uh, examples previously. The, the biggest one I just mentioned a second ago that's worth repeating is examples from rural development. That, that's the one where we've probably got some of the, the worst constrictions concerning population. Things like the water programs that cannot operate in a community over 10,000. If you look up and down California and other states, we have drought. We have water shortages for irrigation. We need to utilize every source of water we can. Healthier forests will produce more water. We're exploring things like, um, um, excuse me, getting water, for, uh, oh, I forget my English there for a second, getting water from the sea, et cetera. But 
Recycled water from our urban areas is a huge opportunity to provide irrigation water. And the reality is communities that are small are not going to have the volume that can pencil out putting the infrastructure in place to get that highly treated wastewater, in most cases treated to drinking water standards, out into the agricultural areas where it can help our farmers that need irrigation water. Um, that's just one example. There's many, many others around uh, other USDA programs and how even our research dollars are allocated. California mm. gets far less of allocation for capacity funds than almost 20 other states simply because of the size of our counties and that right. ridiculous definition about metropolitan. Thank you. Thank Your you. comments Thank are well taken. The general lady from Louisiana, Ms. Letlow, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott, and thank you to all the witnesses for your testimonies and valuable insight. While there have been questions contributing to the conversation here today, and most of my questions have already been addressed, I would like to direct my comments to Dr. Outlaw. Dr. Outlaw, first, I want to personally thank you and your team for the great work in conducting a study to analyze the economic impact on higher fertilizer prices on the Agriculture and Food Policy Center's 64 representative farms, including the grain farm located in my district. And as you know, we are now two months out from the publication and findings of that report. Yet the situation in our countryside continues to be exasperated. I continue to hear the concerns of our farmers, particularly our rice farmers, about the unpredictable challenges they face with increased costs of production, many who are considering whether to plant this year. This is a troublesome trend. Dr. Outlaw, with additional challenges we're now facing globally, the situation has only gotten worse, particularly on fuel and fertilizer. Your study concluded that rice farms experienced the highest fertilizer cost increase, averaging $62.04 per acre, which accounts for an astronomical impact in overall input costs. What might that look like today? And do you agree it is getting worse? And could we quantify that? Yeah, yes, I do agree it's worse. Um, we are currently updating the study. Um, I don't think it's a secret, but the, the Senate Ag Committee has asked for an updated study. Um, if it's a secret, it's not anymore. Um, but the, uh, the the reality is is that when we did that study, we had pulled numbers as of the end of the year and the first couple of months of this year, uh, conditions have deteriorated even more. So I would I would suggest that the estimates we gave you are probably 20 to 30 or maybe even more lower percent lower than, than they will be next time. Well, thank you again for your dedication and expertise in evaluating farm policies and applying them to our hardworking farmers and ranchers on the ground. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I yield back the remainder of my time. Thank you. The gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Bishop, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, uh, Ranking Member Thompson. Uh, thank you both for holding this hearing, and I want to thank our witnesses for coming and the great information that they're bringing, and uh, extend a special welcome to Senator Heitkamp. Uh, I'm going to put on my hat as an appropriator. Uh, you know, through the FY22 
Agriculture Appropriations Bill, uh, USDA is going to receive significant investments to research sustainable agriculture systems and to identify solutions to help the agriculture industry uh, as it constantly evolves to mitigate and adapt to climate change. Uh, the examples include the NRCS's Comet Farm, uh, the Forest Service's Forest Inventory and Analysis Program, the ARS Research Labs, the USDA Climate Hubs, uh, NIFA's Extramural Research Initiatives and Extension Activities, ERS Research Reports, and statistical and spatial data from the National Agriculture Statistics Service. Uh, these USDA agencies, along with the offices of the chief economists and the chief scientists, uh, conduct research uh, for producers to have better data for better decisions. I'll start with Mr. Connor. Uh, can you tell me, and I'd like for the other witnesses to answer this as well, uh, is additional research needed to better understand how climate change will impact farmers, ranchers, and forest owners? And are there uh, additional needs for improvements for existing research tools? And how can USDA help close these, these knowledge gaps? Congressman, I appreciate the question. I, I believe there's a substantial role here that you've identified on a, on a number of these programs. Let me just say that, you know, we encourage uh, USDA to focus, um, and I believe they are on this path of, of measurement and better data collection. And this has been a bit of a theme uh, through this hearing of the, of the need for this. Um, it, it really is sort of holding our, you know, us back in terms of proper representation of, of farmers out there because we just don't have that good measuring uh, um, consistency of data, how it's collected. I would also uh, say something significant from our standpoint is the number of uh, soil sampling reference sites out there, which are critical, again, for gathering data to determine uh, uh, carbon uptake and these sorts of things, um, additional dollars to expand those number of sites, again, to make sure that these programs are not just benefiting one area or one group of farmers, but very, very broadly dispersed. I think that's a, a critical element of that as well. And um, finally, I will just say, generally speaking, uh, we, we really encourage you as appropriators to recognize the role of the Agricultural Research Service and the role that they play in, in, in here uh, in, in terms of that uh, uh, research that uh, ultimately USDA puts on the ground and puts in the hand of farmers. So th thank you for all your work, uh, Congressman, on the Appropriations Committee. I know it's, this has been a tough slog, but uh, we, 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 there will be a, a great outcome from this, we believe. Yeah, and you, I, I would add to that. that I, I would add to that that um, there's some very exciting developments in new technologies. We, we've mentioned robotics and drones, but one example uh, that I would highlight is a recent grant we received that is jointly University of California, University of Illinois, Cornell, and the Agricultural Research Service looking at how artificial intelligence can help us improve every aspect of our food systems from production through workforce, distribution, processing, et cetera. And that's just one example of how, again, we can find these ways to utilize the different agencies and find new technologies that will help us achieve our goals. If I can just chime in here, too, I agree with the other two witnesses and appreciate the question from the congressman. USDA does have a lot of data. We would hope that the missions can share that data in common units, aggregate it, analyze it, and make sure it's anomalized. 
Thank you very kindly. Uh, with that, uh, Mr. Chairman, I will yield back the balance of my time. Thank you. The gentleman from Texas, Mr. Cloud, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, appreciate the time and uh, this discussion today. Um, on one hand, very excited that we're having a hearing on the farm bill. We've had many hearings not related to the farm bill in this term. And uh, we also wanted to thank our future chairman for his comments at the beginning of this hearing uh, and certainly appreciate his level-headed approach to uh, the discussion. You know, in this term, we've had hearings on a retroactive blueberry bill. We've had hearings on electric tractors when no one I'm talking to uh, in the ag industry is asking for electric tractors right now. I did talk to a farmer last week whose tire went out on his tractor and he can't seem to find a tire to continue the good work that he's trying to do on his farm. Um, you know, it was just said that if anyone wants clean air, clean water, um, understands the need for us to be good stewards of our environment, it is the ag community. And I think indeed we've seen that uh, historically what we've seen is we've seen yields uh, of the American ag worker go up. We've seen inputs go dramatically down. And yet uh, the approach right now is to bring the heavy hand of government into that equation as if, as if we can somehow be the savior to a problem that's already being solved by the ag community. And so I have very very strong concerns about that. Historically, what we've seen in the past is whenever government steps in, even to lock in what might be the current great innovation, uh, we lock it in at today's innovation and we actually stifle future innovations. And so I think it's very important that we approach this conversation uh, with all the due diligence it, it deserves. Um, and uh, especially you know, how we've seen the policies, you know, when I'm, it's been said a number of times, but it's worth saying again, uh, what we're seeing today go on right now, the American experience for the family right now, as you go to the grocery stores, you're wondering about food prices, you're wondering about lack of supplies on the shelves. Uh, you go to the American farmer and you're seeing shortage of supplies. We're wondering about high fertilizer prices. We're wondering about uh, pesticides that are not available and what our yields are gonna look back a year from now. Couple that with the geopolitical events going on and the disruption that that will cause uh, we should be talking in this committee about what we can do and, and what that's going to look like a year from now uh, for the American family uh, and, and for our food supply. Um, but today we're talking again about the Green New Deal and um, what we can do uh, about that. And so, um, Dr. Outlaw, could you speak to, you mentioned in your written testimony that many farmers have concerns over government involvement in carbon markets. Can you elaborate on these concerns? Yes, uh, I've been doing this about 30 some odd years and, and over time, uh, even with, with well-based intentions, sometimes the results uh, out of Washington are not as, as people thought they were going to be. Um, but. You know, the, I think, you know, I, I will answer another question real quickly. The, the one thing that, that uh, I'd like for this committee to move forward on is, is farmers are out there questioning all the different companies have their own uh, carbon, soil carbon test. And, and no one's really mentioned that through today, that if, if you really wanted to have one good thing come out of this hearing, which many will, uh, getting to the bottom of, of trying to establish one test that even the International Panel on Climate Change has met six times and has it come up with one test. 
So that's it's, it's an area that needs to be addressed, but uh, frankly, uh, yeah, that was going to be my next question. Actually, if there was one way to measure carbon, but you're saying there's not a uniform way. Lots of people are doing it different ways, so it's hard to have real. It, it leads to solid data. A, a tremendous amount of confusion. Why each company has their proprietary methods that currently, and uh, you know, it seemed like this was a really good function of the of the federal government to kind of come up with this is a measure, and we're going to suggest people use this measure. It would seem to me in what we've seen in the past, of course, when the government intervenes in, into things like this and indeed in carbon markets in the past, you know, what the promise is to the American ag worker is, hey, you, you'll get some sort of financial benefit out of this. What typically it seems to have happened and is, is that we take $10, $10 out of an industry, about $9 of that ends up in a bureaucratic regulatory investigator bundle and about a dollar of that might go back to the ag worker. Uh, and so what the ag worker ends up trading for their small pittance in a sense is a heavy handed regulatory effort that throughout history would seem to be not worth, it's a dance with the devil so to speak. Uh, would you Just give your clear, thoughts Just everything's that? voluntary so far, so producers have a choice, but you're right, they're, they're not acquiring very much money for this. The gentleman's time has expired. The gentlewoman from the U.S. Virgin Islands, Ms. Plaskett, who is also chair of the Subcommittee on Biotechnology, Horticulture, and Research, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Chair. And I want to thank you for this hearing and all the hearings that you've held, which are important to the American people. And with, along with the subcommittees, uh, which you are the ex officio chair of, really provide the support and the underpinnings for the farm bill that we are going to be working on. Uh, Ms. Duncanson, I wanted to ask you a question. In the appendix of your testimony, you suggest that soil health improvements should be built into the federal crop insurance program um, into their rating model. Would this change be intended to replace the current rating model or would it just be an alternative that farmers could choose? At this juncture, my level of expertise regarding that isn't, isn't quite up to snuff as it should be for today. It's been a long morning, but I at this point, I think that we are open to looking at and including that if it's actuarially sound and can be helpful and look towards advice on all different levels on if this would work throughout the country. Thank you. Um, as we all know, uh, farmers over 65 years of age outnumber farmers under 35 by more than six to one. And many U.S. farmers are set to retire in this coming decade. To support the next generation of farmers and ranchers, transition productive farmland, revitalize our nation's rural communities, all while tackling the climate crisis, consider progress must still be made in how federal agencies, including the USDA, serve young farmers and farmers of color. Uh, Ms. Regosa, what are the primary changes that you'd like to see to improve accessibility to the Farm Bill Conservation Program? I would like to see more uh, trained staff that are trained for working with small diversified farmers and farmers of color that are able to provide that technical assistance that they need to access the programs. As um, Also, I know that for our farm, 
Um, we have participated in a lot of uh, different programs, but that's because we've been working for a long time. With, and I think if we had relationships set up with um, like the Young Farmers Coalition, working with those different groups that already have um, good ties with the communities um, would also increase uh, participation. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. I know in my district in the Virgin Islands, the concern is the amount of, um, not that the individuals who are there at USDA are not competent or helpful, but they are overwhelmed uh, and can't really provide the support that's necessary for the amount of individuals that want to go into farming or the amount of technical assistance that they need uh, from bookkeeping to precision farming um, across the line. So I think that that work along with work with our cooperatives is really important. Mr. Connor, in your testimony, you mentioned expanding rural energy for American Pro America program, REAP, eligibility to include cooperatives. Can you explain how this would better enable investments that address climate change? And are those investments limited to one technology? Congresswoman, I don't think they're limited to, to, to one technology. Uh, the REAP uh, program is a very valuable program, and it has uh, uh, provided a, a variety of different types uh, of assistance uh, to date. It is a highly underfunded um, under, um, program. And so one, one way to have an immediate impact is, is to adequately fund that program. And, and again, that, that money could be uh, distributed and, and the benefits received in, in very, very short order. Uh, for us as cooperatives, as you know, we are, uh, um, uh, particularly in the, in the livestock and dairy sector, we are a big presence processing as much as uh, 70 to 80 percent of the, of the milk produced in this country. We are on farms uh, and ranches every single day, and we believe there, there could be a role going forward in, in terms of uh, uh, managing uh, the, uh, uh, the manure and, and, and circumstances that are creating greenhouse gas circumstances for co-ops. Uh, we would like to see them eligible for the REAP program again as, as the, the, the group that is working directly with our farmer owners. Uh, we we've, uh, just feel like there could be a benefit by expanding that eligibility given the role that we play, uh, particularly, again, in the anaerobic digester and manure management kinds of issues. But that's just one example. Thank you so much. And Mr. Chair, thank you for the opportunity to question the witnesses. And I yield back. Thank you, Ms. Plaskett. The gentleman from Florida, Mr. Lawson, is now recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, uh, for having this meeting. This is a great meeting. It's very educational, uh, and it's something that we really needed to have. And all the other meetings have been very good. Uh, and I want to uh, uh, thank the witnesses uh, for being here today uh, to uh, answer a lot of questions and to give us some insight side of what's going on with climate change. Now, according to the Federal Communication Commission, only 78.6% of, uh, of Floridian, the Florida rural areas have access to high-speed uh, broadband service. And this will be uh, to former Senator, how can the rural uh, uh, utility services best help communities get broadband and take advantage of the uh, of the associated benefits? Well, I, I mean, I think that when you look at a state like North Dakota, we have the best 
rural broadband in the country. In fact, my mother-in-law who lived out on the family farm had better broadband in her rural community than they did in Fargo, North Dakota. And I'll tell you how that happened. It happened by a commitment from our rural telecoms um, who really stepped up and, and basically said, we're gonna make this investment. We need to not only look at having the money, but who's going to deploy that money. And you know, obviously coming from a state like North Dakota in my background, I believe co-ops are, are hugely beneficial. I think that what you've got to really watch for in, in uh, implementing a lot of the broadband dollars that you are is that you don't have companies chasing after using those dollars to compete in areas where you already have rural mm -hmm. broadband. We know it's always the last mile, as we used to say in the electrical business, it's always the last mile deploying that is going to cost the most. And so USDA has to be very strategic in how they deploy these dollars. They have to identify where these dollars need to be, um, are, are most acute. One thing I will tell you, and I know we talk a lot about broadband, but I think we have not done enough on wireless. Many of your communities in, in Florida, uh, across the country, do not have cell tower access. They can't actually make a phone call when they're stranded on the road. I have people in Native American communities, students who drive around looking for a signal, holding their hand out of their car so that they can advance their, their work product to their teachers. And so we've got to not just focus on broadband, but the entire connectivity that includes wireless, because I think that's going to be where you're going to get the AI, the data information, the data transfer from the field. So um, uh, thank you, Congress for all the work that you guys are doing and good luck in Florida doing what we did in North Dakota. Hey, thank you very much. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, about sticking your arm out of the window uh, to try to get a signal because sometime going through the district, I've had, <laughs> I had to do that. I'll wait until I go up a hill, you know, uh, I lose it when I go down a hill. And so uh, it was great that you mentioned that. <laughs> it was really great. Uh, now, I, I know firsthand that the, the current uh, federal definition of rural classification limit many counties, especially uh, uh, several in my district, you know, because of their proximity uh, close to uh, an urban center. And, and these are rural areas, but I've had situations where uh, when funding that has been available, I have areas that doesn't qualify. And, it, and this goes to Dr. Humpstead. Uh, can you speak uh, to how the current uh, definition limit in uh, investment in rural economics and how changes in the definition drives investment in climate uh, uh, starts uh, technology? I mean, it, this is this is very very important because I'll give you an example when I when I speak about Jacksonville uh, before you get into the city of Jacksonville, it might be forty or fifty miles so that you're in the city. And it affects uh, counties like Baker that's right outside because they're in that urban municipal service area. What can we do to change that? So several years ago, we did uh, create new language about the rural developments business programs that would allow construction of food manufacturing, processing facilities in larger cities. In essence, we took the population limits off because those facilities were directly serving farmers. To the degree we can start being smarter about all of the rural development programs to make sure they're serving 
rural needs, rural development, that's the name, we need to quit thinking about population as the only criteria for eligibility to these. And, and it's across all the rural development programs. It's just a matter of being smarter about how we serve rural and what rural is. Thank you very much. The gentleman's time has expired. Yes, I yield back, my chairman. <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this comes to a conclusion of our hearing. And I want to thank you on behalf of our House Agriculture Committee. I want to thank all of our witnesses. Your testimony has been very helpful on this very, very important issue and all of the issues that we have covered this morning in terms of perspectives on how our Farm Bill programs are meeting their missions while helping to develop and implement solutions to the climate crisis and supporting our agriculture producers and our rural communities. It is very important to me that we look at all the ways that farmers are using our Farm Bill programs to mitigate climate change, among all the other issues that we have been faced with. In Georgia, we've seen more frequent national or natural disasters. Hurricane Matthew in 2016, Hurricane Emma and Irma in 2017, and Hurricane Michael in 2018, back to back. We see them lined up, coming off the African coast into the islands, and then devastating our most fertile agriculture territory, which is the southeastern United States. And these extreme weather patterns throughout our country is certainly getting worse, and it is very important that we've heard from you today in terms of your thoughts on how we can address these as we move through and develop our next farm bill so that we can reverse this trend um, through farming practices that many of our farmers are here. Regardless of what it is, we now have things like uh, credit for, uh, carbon credits. We have different ways of assisting and partnering with our farmers. Some in this want to do it by carbon credits. They want to do it by how much soil or, or carbon our farmers can sequester. Others by cover crops. We're having difficulty in how we uh, label and define all these areas. It's new on us, and that's why it is important for us not to run from this, but to solve it. We can solve these fires. They're burning up so much. Many of our livestock and animals are burned up into this. And so... I want to thank each of you, and we've had a great hearing in terms of our farm bill so that we can serve the needs of our great farmers 
and our great nation. And so, under the rules of the committee, the record of today's hearing will remain open for 10 calendar days to receive additional material and supplementary written responses from our witnesses to any questions posed by a member. And so, this hearing is now adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.